Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. To find out more information, or how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde As read by John Gonzales, www.johngon.com Chapter 1 the studio was filled with the rich odor of roses, and when the light summer wind stirred amidst the trees of the garden, there came through the open door the heavy scent of the lilac, or the more delicate perfume of the pink-flowering thorn. From the corner of the divan of Persian saddlebags on which he was lying, smoking, as usual, innumerable cigarettes, Lord Henry Wooten could just catch the gleam of the honey-sweet and honey-coloured blossoms of the laburnum, whose tremulous branches seemed hardly able to bear the burden of a beauty so flame-like as theirs. And now and then the fantastic shadows of birds in flight flitted across the long tussor silk curtains that were stretched in front of the huge window, producing a kind of momentary Japanese effect, and making him think of those pallid, jade-faced painters who, in an art that is necessarily immobile, seek to convey the sense of swiftness and motion. The sullen murmur of the bees shouldering their way through the long, unmown grass, or circling with monotonous insistence round the black-crocketed spires of the early June hollyhocks, seemed to make the stillness more oppressive, and the dim roar of London was like the burdened note of a distant organ. In the centre of the room, clamped to an upright easel, stood the full-length portrait of a young man of extraordinary personal beauty, and in front of it, some little distance away, was sitting the artist himself, Basil Hallward, whose sudden disappearance some years ago caused, at the time, some public excitement, and gave rise to so many strange conjectures. As he looked at the gracious and comely form he had so skilfully mirrored in his art, a smile of pleasure passed across his face, and seemed about to linger there. But he suddenly started up, and, closing his eyes, placed his fingers upon the lids, as though he sought to imprison within his brain some curious dream, from which he feared he might awake. "'It is your best work, Basil, the best thing you have ever done,' said Lord Harry, languidly. "'You must certainly send it next year to the Grosvenor. The Academy is too large and too vulgar. The Grosvenor is the only place.' "'I don't think I will send it anywhere,' he answered. 
tossing his head back in the odd way that used to make his friends laugh at him at Oxford. No, I won't send it anywhere. Lord Henry elevated his eyebrows and looked at him in amazement through the thin blue wreaths of smoke that curled up in such fanciful whorls from his heavy, opium-tainted cigarette. Not send it anywhere? My dear fellow, why? Have you any reason? What odd chaps you painters are! You do anything in the world to gain a reputation. As soon as you have one, you seem to want to throw it away. It is silly of you. For there is only one thing in the world worse than being talked about. And that is not being talked about. A portrait like this would set you far above all the young men in England, and make the old men quite jealous, if old men are ever capable of any emotion. I know you will laugh at me, he replied, but I really can't exhibit it. I've put too much of myself into it. Lord Henry stretched his long legs out on the divan and shook with laughter. Yes, I knew you would laugh. But it is quite true, all the same. Too much of yourself in it? Upon my word, Basil, I didn't know you were so vain, and I really can't see any resemblance between you, with your rugged strong face and cold black hair, and this young Adonis, who looks as if he was made of ivory and rose-leaves. Why, my dear Basil, he is a Narcissus, and you— Well— of course, you have an intellectual expression and all that, but beauty, real beauty, ends where an intellectual expression begins. Intellect is in itself an exaggeration, and destroys the harmony of any face. The moment one sits down to think, one becomes all nose, or all forehead, or something horrid. Look at the successful men in any of the learned professions. How perfectly hideous they are, except, of course— in the church. But then, in the church, they don't think. A bishop keeps on saying at the age of eighty what he was told to say when he was a boy of eighteen, and consequently he always looks absolutely delightful. Your mysterious friend, whose name you have never told me, but whose picture really fascinates me, never thinks. I feel quite sure about that. He is a brainless, beautiful thing, who should always be here in winter when we have no flowers to look at, and always here in summer when we want something to chill our intelligence. Don't flatter yourself, Basil. You are not in the least like him. You don't understand me, Harry. Of course I am not like him. I know that perfectly well. Indeed, I should be sorry to look like him. You shrug your shoulders? I'm telling you the truth. There's a fatality about all physical and intellectual distinction, the sort of fatality that seems to dog through history the faltering steps of kings. It is better not to be different from one's fellows. The ugly and the stupid have the best of it in this world. They can sit quietly and gape at the play. If they know nothing of victory, they are at least spared the knowledge of defeat. They live as we all should live. "'undisturbed, indifferent, and without disquiet. "'They neither bring ruin upon themselves, "'nor ever receive it from alien hands. "'Your rank and wealth, Harry, my brains, 
such as they are, my fame, whatever it may be worth. Dorian Gray's good looks. We will all suffer for what the gods have given us. Suffer terribly. Dorian Gray? Is that his name? said Lord Henry, walking across the studio towards Basil Hallward. Yes, that is his name. I didn't intend to tell it to you. But why not? Oh, I can't explain. When I like people immensely, I never tell their names to anyone. It seems like surrendering a part of them. You know how I love secrecy. It is the only thing that can make modern life wonderful or mysterious to us. The commonest thing is delightful if one only hides it. When I leave town, I never tell any people where I'm going. If I did, I would lose all my pleasure. It is a silly habit, I dare say, but somehow it seems to bring a great deal of romance into one's life. I suppose you think me awfully foolish about it. Not at all, answered Lord Henry, laying his hand upon his shoulder. Not at all, my dear Basil. You seem to forget that I am married, and the one charm of marriage is that it makes a life of deception necessary for both parties. I never know where my wife is, and my wife never knows what I am doing. When we meet, we do meet occasionally, when we dine together or go down to the Duke's, we tell each other the most absurd stories with the most serious faces. My wife is very good at it, much better. In fact, than I am. She never gets confused over her dates, and I always do. But when she does find me out, she makes no row at all. I sometimes wish she would, and she merely laughs at me. I hate the way you talk about your married life, Harry, said Basil Hallward, shaking his hand off and strolling towards the door that led into the garden. I believe you are really a very good husband. But that you are thoroughly ashamed of your own virtues. You are an extraordinary fellow. You never say a moral thing, and you never do a wrong thing. Your cynicism is simply a pose. Being natural is simply a pose. And the most irritating pose I know, cried Lord Henry, laughing. And the two men went out into the garden together, and for a time they did not speak. After a long pause, Lord Henry pulled out his watch. I'm afraid I must be going, Basil, he murmured. And before I go, I insist on your answering a question I put to you some time ago. What is that? asked Basil Hallward, keeping his eyes fixed on the ground. You know quite well. I do not, Harry. Well, I will tell you what it is. Please don't. I must. I want you to explain to me why you won't exhibit Dorian Gray's picture. I want the real reason. I told you the real reason. No, you did not. You said it was because there was too much of yourself in it. Now that is childish. Harry, said Basil Hallward, looking at him straight in the face. Every portrait that is painted with feeling is a portrait of the artist, not of the sitter. The sitter is merely the accident, the occasion. It is not he 
who is revealed by the painter. It is rather the painter who, on the colored canvas, uh, reveals himself. The, the reason I will not exhibit this picture is that I am afraid that I have shown with it the secret of my own soul. Lord Harry laughed. <laughs> and what is that? he asked. I will tell you, said Holwood. An expression of perplexity came over his face. I am all expectation, Basil, murmured his companion, looking at him. Oh, there is really very little to tell, Harry, answered the young painter, and I'm afraid you will hardly understand it. Perhaps you will hardly believe it. Lord Henry smiled, and, leaning down, plucked a pink-petaled daisy from the grass, and examined it. I'm quite sure I shall understand it, he replied, gazing intently at the little golden white-feathered disc, and I can believe anything, provided that it is incredible. The wind shook some blossoms from the trees, and the heavy lilac blooms, with their clustering stars, moved to and fro in the languid air. A grasshopper began to chirp in the grass, and a long, thin dragonfly floated by on its own brown gauze wings. Lord Henry felt as if he could hear Basil Hallward's heart beating, and wondered what was coming. "'Well, this is incredible,' repeated Hallward, rather bitterly. "'Incredible to me at times. I don't know what it means. The story is simply this. Two months ago I went to a crush at Lady Brandon's. You know we poor painters have to show ourselves in society from time to time, just to remind the public that we are not savages. With an evening coat and a white tie, as you once told me, anybody, even a stockbroker, can gain a reputation for being civilized. Well, after I'd been in the room about ten minutes, talking to huge overdressed dowagers and tedious academicians, I suddenly became conscious that someone was looking at me. I turned halfway round and saw Dorian Gray for the first time. When our eyes met, I felt that I was growing pale. A curious instinct of terror came over me. I knew that I had come face to face with someone whose mere personality was so fascinating that if I allowed it to do so, it would absorb my whole nature, my whole soul, my very art itself. I did not want any external influence in my life. You know yourself, Harry, how independent I am by nature. My father destined me for the army. I insisted on going to Oxford. Then he made me enter my name at the Middle Temple. Before I had eaten half a dozen dinners, I gave up the bar and announced my intention of becoming a painter. I have always been my own master. Had at least always been so till I met Dorian Gray. And then, but I don't know how to explain it to you. Something seemed to tell me that I was on the verge of a terrible crisis in my life. 
I had a strange feeling that fate had in store for me exquisite joys and exquisite sorrows. I knew that if I had spoke to Dorian, I would become absolutely devoted to him, and that I ought not to speak to him. I grew afraid, and turned to quit the room. It was not conscience that made me do so. It was cowardice. I take no credit to myself for trying to escape. Conscience and cowardice are really the same things, Basil. Conscience is the trade name of the firm, that is all. I don't believe that, Harry. However, whatever my motive, and it may have been pride, for I used to be very proud, I certainly struggled to the door. There, of course, I stumbled against Lady Brandon. You are not going to run away so soon, Mr. Hallward? She screamed out. You know her shrill, horrid voice. Yes, she is a peacock in everything but beauty, said Lord Henry, pulling the daisy to bits with his long, nervous fingers. I could not get rid of her. She brought me up to royalties, and people with stars and garters, and elderly ladies with gigantic tiaras and hooked noses. She spoke of me as her dearest friend. I had only met her once before, but she took it into her head to lionize me. I believe some picture of mine had made a great success at the time, at least had been chatted about in the penny newspapers, which is the nineteenth-century standard of immortality. Suddenly I found myself face to face with a young man whose personality had so strangely stirred me. We were quite close, almost touching. Our eyes met again. It was mad of me, but I asked Lady Brandon to introduce me to him. Perhaps it was not so mad, after all. It was simply inevitable. We would have spoken to each other without any introduction, I am sure of that. Dorian told me so afterwards. He, too, felt that we were destined to know each other. And how did Lady Brandon describe this wonderful young man? I know she goes in for giving rapid precis of all her guests. I, I remember her bringing me to a most truculent and red-faced old gentleman covered all over with orders and ribbons and hissing into my ear in a tragic whisper which must have been perfectly audible to every one in the room, something like, Sir Humpty Dumpty, you know, Afghan frontier, Russian intrigues, very successful men, wife killed by an elephant, quite inconsolable, wants to marry a beautiful American widow, everybody does nowadays, hates Mr. Gladstone, but very much interested in Beatles. Ask him what he thinks of Shuvalov. I simply fled. I like to find out people for myself, but Lady Brandon treats her guests exactly as an auctioneer treats his goods. She either explains them entirely away, or tells everyone everything about them, except what one wants to know. But what did she say about Mr. Dorian Gray? Oh, she murmured, Charming boy, poor dear mother and I, quite inseparable, engaged to be married to the same man. I, I mean, married on the same day. <laughs> How very silly of me. Quite forget what he does. Afraid he uh, doesn't do anything. Oh, yes, yes, plays the piano. Uh, or is it the violin, dear Mr. Gray? 
We could neither of us help laughing, and we became friends at once. Laughter is not a bad beginning for a friendship, and it is the best ending for one, said Lord Henry, plucking another daisy. Hallward buried his face in his hands. You don't understand what friendship is, Harry, he murmured, or what enmity is, for that matter. You like everyone. Well, that is to say, you are indifferent to everyone. How horribly unjust of you! cried Lord Henry, tilting his hat back, and looking at the little clouds that were drifting across the hollow turquoise of the summer sky like raveled skeins of glossy white silk. Yes, horribly unjust of you. I make a great difference between people. I choose my friends for their good looks, my acquaintances for their characters, and my enemies for their brains. A man can't be too careful in the choice of his enemies. I have not got one who is a fool. They are all men of some intellectual power, and consequently they all appreciate me. Is that very vain of me? I think it is rather vain. I should think it was, Harry, but according to your category, I must merely be an acquaintance. My dear old Basil, you are much more than an acquaintance. And much less a friend, a sort of brother, I suppose. Oh, brothers! <laughs> I don't care for brothers. My elder brother won't die, and my younger brothers seem never to do anything else. Harry! My dear fellow, I am not quite serious. But I can't help detesting my relations. I suppose it comes from the fact that we can't stand other people having the same faults as ourselves. I quite sympathize with the rage of the English democracy against what they call the vices of the upper classes. They feel that drunkenness, stupidity, and immorality should be their own special property, and that if any one of us makes an ass of himself, he is poaching on their preserves. When poor Southwark got into the divorce court, their indignation was quite magnificent. Yet I don't suppose that ten percent of the lower orders live correctly. I don't agree with a single word that you have said, and what is more, Harry, I don't believe you do either. Lord Henry stroked his pointed brown beard and tapped the toe of his patent leather boot with a tasseled malacca cane. How English you are, Basil. If one puts forward an idea to a real Englishman, always a rash thing to do, he never dreams of considering whether the idea is right or wrong. The only thing he considers of any importance is whether he believes it oneself. Now, the value of an idea has nothing whatsoever to do with the sincerity of the man who expresses it. Indeed, the probabilities are that the more insincere the man is, the more purely intellectual will the idea be, as in that case it will not be coloured by either his wants, his desires, or his prejudices. However, I don't propose to discuss politics, sociology, or metaphysics with you. I like persons better than principles. Tell me more about Dorian Gray. How often do you see him? Every day. I couldn't be happy if I didn't see him every day. Of course, sometimes it's only for a few minutes, but a few minutes with somebody one worships 
means a great deal. You don't really worship him? I do. How extraordinary. I thought you would never care for anything but your painting, your art, I should say. Art sounds better, doesn't it? He is all my art to me now. I think sometimes, Harry, that there are only two errors of importance in the history of the world. The first is the appearance of a new medium of art, and the second is the appearance of a new personality for art also. What the invention of oil painting was to the Venetians, the face of Antinous was to late Greek sculpture, and the face of Dorian Gray will some day be to me. It is not merely that I paint from him, draw from him, model from him. Of course, I've done all that. He has stood as Paris in dainty armor, as, as Adonis with huntsman cloak and polished boar spear. Crowned with heavy lotus blossoms, he has sat on the prow of Adrian's barge, looking into the green, turbid Nile. He has leaned over the still pool of some Greek woodland, and seen in the water's silent silver the wonder of his own beauty. But he is much more to me than that. I won't tell you that I am dissatisfied with what I have done of him, or that his beauty is such that art cannot express it. There, there is nothing that art cannot express. And I know that the work I have done since I met Dorian Gray, it's good work. It's the best work of my life. But in some curious way, I wonder, will you understand me? His personality has suggested to me an entirely new manner in art, an entirely new mode of style. I see things differently. I think of them differently. I can now recreate life in a way that was hidden from me before. A dream of form in days of, of thought. Who is it that said that? I, I forget. But it is what Dorian Gray has been to me. The merely visible presence of this lad. For he seems to me little more than a lad, though he is really over twenty. His merely visible presence. Oh, I wonder, can you realize all that that means? Unconsciously, he defines for me the lines of a fresh school, a school that is to have in itself all the passion of the romantic spirit, all the perfection of the spirit that is Greek, that the harmony of soul and body, oh, how much that is, we in our madness have separated the two and, and have invented a realism that is bestial, an ideality that is void. Harry, Harry, if you only knew what Dorian Gray is to me, you remember that landscape of mine, for which Agnew offered me such a huge price, but which I would not part with? It is one of the best things I've ever done. And why is it so? Because while I was painting it, Dorian Gray sat beside me. Basil, that is quite wonderful. I must see Dorian Gray. Oliver got up from his seat and walked up and down the garden. After some time he came back. You don't understand, Harry, he said. Dorian Gray is merely to me a motive in art. He is never more present in my work than when no image of him is there. He is simply a suggestion, as I have said, of, of a new manner. 
I see him in the curves of certain lines, in the loveliness and subtleties of certain colors, that is all. Then why won't you exhibit his portrait? Because I have put into it all the extraordinary romance, of which, of course, I have never dared to speak to him. He knows nothing about it. He will never know anything about it. But the world might guess it. And I will not bear my soul to their shallow, prying eyes. My heart shall never be put under their microscope. There is too much of myself in that thing, Harry, too much of myself. Poets are not so scrupulous as you are. They know how useful passion is for publication. Nowadays, Broken Heart will run to many editions. I hate them for it. An artist should create beautiful things, but should put nothing of his own life into them. We live in an age where men treat art as if it were meant to be a form of autobiography. We have lost the abstract sense of beauty. If I live, I will show the world what it is, and for that reason the world shall never see my portrait of Dorian Gray. I think you are wrong, Basil, and I won't argue with you. It is only the intellectually lost who ever argue. Tell me, is Dorian Gray very fond of you? Hallward considered for a few moments. He likes me, he answered after a pause. I know he likes me. Of course I flatter him dreadfully. I find a pleasure in saying things to him that I know I shall be sorry for having said. I give myself away. As a rule, he is charming to me, and we walk home together from the club arm in arm, or sit in the studio and talk of a thousand things. Now and then, however, he is horribly thoughtless. Seems to take a real delight in giving me pain. Then I feel, Harry, that I have given away my whole soul to someone who treats it as if it were a flower to put in his coat bit of decoration to charm his vanity, an ornament for a summer's day. Days in summer, Basil, are apt to linger. Perhaps you will tire sooner than he will. It is a sad thing to think of, but there is no doubt that genius lasts longer than beauty. That accounts for the fact that we all take such pains to over-educate ourselves. In the wild struggle for existence, we want to have something that endures. And so we fill our minds with rubbish and facts and the silly hope of keeping our place. The thoroughly well-informed man, that is the modern ideal. And the mind of the thoroughly well-informed man is a dreadful thing. It's like a bric-a-brac shop, all monsters and dust, and everything priced above its proper value. I think you will tire first, all the same. Some day you will look at Gray, and he will seem to you to be a little out of drawing, or you won't like his tone of colour or something. You will bitterly reproach him in your own heart, seriously think that he has behaved very badly to you. Next time he calls, you will be perfectly cold and indifferent. It will be a great pity, for it will alter you. The worst of having a romance is that it leaves one so unromantic. Harry, don't talk like that. As long as I live, the personality of Dorian Gray will dominate me. You 
can't feel what I feel. You change too often. Oh, my dear Basil, that is exactly why I can feel it. Those who are faithful know only the pleasures of love. It is the faithless who know love's tragedies. And Lord Henry struck a light on a dainty silver case, and began to smoke a cigarette with a self-conscious and self-satisfied air, as if he had summed up life in a phrase. There was a rustle of chirping sparrows in the ivy, and the blue cloud-shadows chased themselves across the grass-like swallows. How pleasant it was in the garden, and how delightful other people's emotions were much more delightful than their ideas. It seemed to be fascinating things in life. How pleasant it was in the garden, and how delightful other people's emotions were. Much more delightful than their ideas, it seemed to him. One's own soul, and the passions of one's friends, those were the fascinating things in life. He thought with pleasure of the tedious luncheon that he had missed by staying so long with Basil Hallward. Had he gone to his aunt's, he would have been sure to meet Lord Goodbody there, and the whole conversation would have been about the housing of the poor, and the necessity of model lodging-houses. It was charming to have escaped all that. As he thought of his aunt, an idea seemed to strike him. He turned to Hallward and said, "'My dear fellow!' I've just remembered. Remembered what, Harry? Where I heard the name of Dorian Gray. Where was it? Asked Hallward with a slight frown. Oh, don't look so angry, Basil. It was at my aunt's, Lady Agatha's. She told me she had discovered a wonderful young man who was going to help her in the East End, and that his name was Dorian Gray. I'm bound to state that she never told me he was good-looking. Women have no appreciation of good looks, at least good women have not. She said that he was very earnest, and had a beautiful nature. I had once pictured myself a creature with spectacles and lank hair, horribly freckled and tramping about on huge feet. I wish I had known it was your friend. I'm very glad you didn't, Harry. Why? I don't want you to meet him. Mr. Dorian Gray is in the studio, sir, said the butler, coming into the garden. You must introduce me now, cried Lord Henry, laughing. Basil Hallward turned to the servant, who stood blinking in the sunlight. Ask Mr. Gray to wait, Parker. I'll be in in a few moments. The man bowed and went up the walk. Then he looked at Lord Henry. Dorian Gray is my dearest friend, he said. He has a simple and beautiful nature. Your aunt was quite right in what she said of him. Don't spoil him for me. Don't try to influence him. Your influence would be bad. The world is wide and has many marvellous people in it. Don't take away from me the one person that makes life absolutely lovely to me, and that gives to my art whatever wonder or charm it possesses. Mine, Harry, I trust you. He spoke very slowly, and the words seemed wrung out of him almost against his will. 
"'What nonsense you talk!' said Lord Henry, smiling, and, taking Hallward by the arm, he almost led him into the house. End of chapter 1 Of the Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. To find out more information, or how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde As read by John Gonzales www.johngon.com Chapter 2 As they entered, they saw Dorian Gray. He was seated at the piano with his back to them, turning over the pages of a volume of Schumann's Forest Scenes. "'You must lend me these, Basil,' he cried. "'I want to learn them. They are perfectly charming.' "'That entirely depends on how you sit today, Dorian.' "'Oh, I'm tired of sitting, and I don't want a life-size portrait of myself,' answered the lad, swinging round on the music-stool in a willful, petulant manner. When he got sight of Lord Henry, a faint blush coloured his cheeks for a moment, and he started up. "'I beg your pardon, Basil, but I didn't know you had anyone with you.' "'This is Lord Henry Wooten, Dorian.' "'An old Oxford friend of mine. "'I've just been telling him what a capital sitter you were, "'and now you've spoiled everything.' "'You have not spoiled my pleasure in meeting you, Mr. Gray,' "'said Lord Henry, stepping forward and shaking him by the hand. "'My aunt has often spoken to me about you. "'You're one of her favourites, "'and, I am afraid, one of her victims, too.' "'I am in Lady Agatha's black books at present,' answered Dorian, with a funny look of penitence. "'I promised to go to her club in Whitechapel with her last Tuesday, and I really forgot all about it. "'We were to have played a duet together—three duets, I believe. "'I don't know what she will say to me. "'I'm far too frightened to call. "'Oh, I will make your peace with my aunt. She is quite devoted to you. "'And I don't think it really matters about your not being there. "'The audience probably thought it was a duet. "'When Aunt Agatha sits down to the piano, "'she makes quite enough noise for two people. "'That <laughs> That is very horrid to her, and not very nice to me,' "'answered Dorian, laughing. "'Lord Henry looked at him. "'Yes, he was certainly wonderfully handsome, "'with his finely curved scarlet lips, "'his frank blue eyes, his crisp gold hair.' There was something in his face that made one trust him at once. All the candour of youth was there, as well as all youth's passionate purity. One felt that he had kept himself unspotted from the world. No wonder Basil Hallward worshipped him. He was made to be worshipped. "'You're too charming to go into philanthropy, Mr. Gray. Far too charming.' and Lord Henry flung himself down on the divan, and opened his cigarette-case. Hallward had been busy mixing his colours and getting his brushes ready. He was looking worried, and when he heard Lord Henry's last remark, he glanced at him, hesitated for a moment, and then said, "'Harry, I want to finish this picture to-day. Would you think it awfully rude of me if I asked you to go away?' 
Lord Henry smiled and looked at Dorian Gray. "'Am I to go, Mr. Gray?' he asked. "'Oh, please don't, Lord Henry. I see that Basil is in one of his sulky moods, and I can't bear him when he sulks. Besides, I want you to tell me why I should not go in for philanthropy.' "'I don't know that I shall tell you that, Mr. Gray, but I certainly will not run away, now that you have asked me to stop. "'You don't really mind, do you, Basil? You have often told me that you liked your sitters to have someone to chat to.' Hallward bit his lip. "'If Dorian wishes it, of course you must stay. Dorian's whims are laws to everybody, except himself.' Lord Henry took up his hat and gloves. "'You are very pressing, Basil, but I am afraid I must go. I have promised to meet a man at the Orléans. Good-bye, Mr. Graham. Come and see me some afternoon in Curzon Street. I am nearly always at home at five o'clock. Write to me when you are coming. I should be sorry to miss you.' "'Basil!' cried Dorian Gray. "'If Lord Henry goes, I shall go too.' You never open your lips when you are painting, and it's horribly dull standing on a platform and trying to look pleasant. Ask him to stay. I insist upon it. Stay, Harry, to oblige Dorian, and to oblige me, said Hallward, gazing intently at his picture. It is quite true. I never talk when I am working, and never listen either, and it must be dreadfully tedious for my unfortunate sitters. I beg you to stay." "'But what about my man at the Orléans?' Hallward laughed. "'I don't think that there will be any difficulty about that. "'Sit down again, Harry. "'And now, Dorian, get up on that platform and don't move about too much, "'or pay any attention to what Lord Henry says. "'He is a very bad influence over all his friends, with the exception of myself.' "'Dorian stepped up on the dais with the air of a young Greek martyr and made a little mouet of discontent to Lord Henry, to whom he had rather taken a fancy. He was so unlike Hallward. They made a delightful contrast, and he had such a beautiful voice. After a few moments he said to him, "'Have you really a bad influence, Lord Henry, as bad as Basil says?' "'There's no such thing as a good influence, Mr. Gray. All influence is immoral.' "'Immoral from the scientific point of view. "'Why?' "'Because to influence a person is to give him one's own soul. "'He does not think his natural thoughts or burn with his natural passions. "'His virtues are not real to him. "'His sins, if there are such things as sins, are borrowed. "'He becomes an echo of someone else's music, "'an actor of a part that has not been written for him. "'The aim of life is self-development. "'To realize one's nature perfectly, "'that is what each of us is here for. "'People are afraid of themselves nowadays. "'They have forgotten the highest of all duties, "'the duty that one owes to oneself. Of course they are charitable, they feed the hungry and clothe the beggar, but their own souls starve and are naked. Courage has gone out of our race, and perhaps we never really had it, the terror of society, which is the basis of morals, the terror of God, 
which is the secret of religion, these are the two things that govern us. And yet, oh, just turn your head a little to the right, Dorian, like a good boy, said Hallward, deep in his work, and conscious only that a look had come into the lad's face that he had never seen there before. And yet, continued Lord Henry, in his low musical voice, and with that graceful wave of the hand that was always so characteristic of him, and that he had even in his Eton days. I believe that if one man were to live his life out fully and completely, were to give form to every feeling, expression to every thought, reality to every dream, I believe that the world would gain such a fresh impulse of joy that we would forget all the maladies of medievalism, and return to the Hellenic ideal, to something finer, richer, than the Hellenic ideal, it may be. But the bravest man among us is afraid of himself. The mutilation of the savage has its tragic survival in the self-denial that mars our lives. We are punished for our refusals. Every impulse that we strive to strangle broods in the mind and poisons us. The body sins once and has done with the sin, for action is a mode of purification. Nothing remains then but the recollection of a pleasure, or the luxury of a regret. The only way to get rid of a temptation is to yield to it. Resist it, and your soul grows sick with longing for the things it has forbidden to itself, with desire for what its monstrous laws have made monstrous and unlawful. It has been said that the great events of the world take place in the brain. It is in the brain, and the brain only, that the great sins of the world take place also. You, Mr. Gray, you yourself, with your rose-red youth and rose-white boyhood, you have had passions that have made you afraid, thoughts that have filled you with terror, daydreams and sleeping dreams, whose mere memory might stain your cheek with shame. Stop! murmured Dorian Grace. Stop, stop! You bewilder me. I, I don't know what to say. There is some answer to you, but I cannot find it. Don't speak. L let me think. Or, or rather, let me try not to think. For nearly ten minutes he stood there, motionless, with parted lips, and eyes strangely bright. He was dimly conscious that Entirely fresh impulses were at work within him, and they seemed to him to have come really from himself. The few words that Basil's friend had said to him, words spoken by chance, no doubt, and with willful paradox in them, had yet touched some secret chord that had never been touched before, but that he felt was now vibrating and throbbing to curious pulses. Music had stirred him like that. Music had troubled him many times, but music was not articulate. It was not a new world, but rather a new chaos that it created in us words. Mere words, how terrible they were, how clear and vivid and cruel. One could not escape from them, and yet what a subtle magic there was in them. They seemed to be able to give a plastic form to formless things, and to have a music of their own as sweet as that of the viol or of lute. Mere words? Was there anything so real 
as words? Yes, there had been things in his boyhood that he had not understand. He, he understood them now. I suddenly became fiery-colored to him. It seemed to him that he had been walking in fire. Why had he not known it? Lord Henry watched him with his sad smile. He knew the precise psychological moment when to say nothing. He felt intensely interested. He was amazed at the sudden impression that his words had produced, and, remembering a book that he had read when he was sixteen, which had revealed to him much that he had not known before, he wondered whether Dorian Gray was passing through the same experience. He had merely shot an arrow into the air. Had he hit the mark? How fascinating the lad was! Hallward painted away with that marvellous bold touch of his, that had the true refinement and perfect delicacy that come only from strength. He was unconscious of the silence. "'Bezel, I'm, I'm tired of standing,' cried Dorian Gray suddenly. "'I must go out and sit in the garden. The air is stifling here.' "'My dear fellow, I am so sorry. When I am painting, I can't think of anything else. But you never sat better. You, you were perfectly still. And I've caught the effect I wanted. The half-parted lips, the bright look in the eyes. I don't know what Harry has been saying to you, but he has certainly made you have the most wonderful expression. I suppose he has been paying you compliments. You mustn't believe a word he says.' "'He has certainly not been paying me compliments.' Perhaps that is the reason I don't think I believe anything he has told me. You know you believe it all, said Lord Henry, looking at him in his dreamy, heavy-lidded eyes. I will go out to the garden with you. It is horridly hot in the studio. Basil, let us have something iced to drink, something with strawberries in it. Certainly, Harry, just touch the bell, and when Parker comes, I will tell him what you want. To work on this background, so I will join you later on. Don't keep Dorian too long. I've never been in better form for painting than I am today. This is going to be my masterpiece. It is my masterpiece as it stands. Lord Henry went out to the garden and found Dorian Gray burying his face in the great cool lilac blossoms, feverishly drinking in their perfume as if it had been wine. He was close to them, and put his hand on his shoulder. "'You're quite right to do that,' he murmured. "'Nothing can cure the soul but the senses, just as nothing can cure the senses but the soul.' The lad started and drew back. He was bareheaded, and the leaves had tossed his rebellious curls and tangled all their gilded threads. There was a look of fear in his eyes, such as people have when they are suddenly awakened. His finely chiseled nostrils quivered, and some hidden nerve shook the scarlet of his lips and left them trembling. Yes, continued Lord Henry, that is one of the great secrets of life, to cure the soul by means of the senses, and the senses by means of the soul. You are a wonderful creature. You know much more than you think you know, just as you know less than you want to know. Dorian Gray frowned and turned his head away. He could not help 
liking the tall, graceful young man who was standing by him. His romantic, olive-covered face and worn expression interested him. There was something in his low, languid voice that was absolutely fascinating. His cool, white, flower-like hands even had a curious charm. They moved, as he spoke, like music, and seemed to have a language of their own. But he felt afraid of him, and ashamed of being afraid. Why had it been left for a stranger to reveal him to himself? He had known Basil Hallward for months, but the friendship between them had never altered him. Suddenly there had come someone across his life who seemed to have disclosed to him life's mystery. And yet, what was there to be afraid of? He was not a schoolboy or a girl. It was absurd to be frightened. "'Let us go and sit in the shade,' said Lord Henry. "'Parker has brought out the drinks, and if you stay any longer in this glare you will be quite spoiled, and Basil will never paint you again. You really must not let yourself become sunburnt. It would be very unbecoming to you.' "'What does it matter?' cried Dorian, laughing, as he sat down on the seat at the end of the garden. "'It should matter everything to you, Mr. Gray.' "'Why?' "'Because you have now the most marvellous youth, "'and youth is the one thing worth having.' "'Oh, I don't feel that, Lord Henry. "'No, you don't feel it. "'Now, some day when you are old and wrinkled and ugly, "'when thought has seared your forehead with its lines "'and passion branded your lips with its hideous fires, "'you will feel it. You'll feel it terribly.' Now, wherever you go, you charm the world. Will it always be so? You have a wonderfully beautiful face, Mr. Gray. Oh, don't frown, you have. And beauty is a form of genius, is higher, indeed, than genius, as it needs no explanation. It is one of the great facts of the world, like sunlight, or springtime, or the reflection in dark waters of that silver shell we call the moon. It cannot be questioned. It has its divine right of sovereignty. It makes princes of those who have it. You smile? <laughs> when you've lost it, you won't smile. People say sometimes that beauty is only superficial. That may be so, but at least it is not so superficial as thought. To me, beauty is the wonder of wonders. It is only shallow people who do not judge by appearances. The true mystery of the world is the visible, not the invisible. Yes, Mr. Gray, the gods have been good to you. But what the gods give, they quickly take away. You only have a few years in which really to live. When your youth goes, your beauty will go with it, and then you will suddenly discover that there are no triumphs left for you, or have to content yourself with those mean triumphs that the memory of your past will make more bitter than defeats. Every month as it wanes brings you nearer to something dreadful. Time is jealous of you, and wars against your lilies and your roses. You will become sallow and hollow-cheeked, 
and dull-eyed. You will suffer horribly. Realize your youth while you have it. Don't squander the gold of your days listening to the tedious, trying to improve the hopeless failure, or giving away your life to the ignorant, the common and the vulgar, which are the aims, the false ideals of our age. Live. Live the wonderful life that is in you. Let nothing be lost upon you. Be always searching for new sensations. Be afraid of nothing. A new hedonism. That is what a century wants. You might be its visible symbol. With your personality, there is nothing you could not do. The world belongs to you for a season. The moment I met you, I saw that you were quite unconscious of what you really are. What you really might be. There was so much about you that charmed me that I felt I must tell you something about yourself. I thought how tragic it would be if you were wasted. For there is such a little time that your youth will last such a little time. The common hill flowers wither, but they blossom again. The laburnum will be as gold next June as it is now. In a month there will be purple stars on the clements, and year after year the green night of its leaves will have its purple stars. But never again get we back our youth. The pulse of joy that beats in us at twenty becomes sluggish. Our limbs fail, our senses rot. We degenerate into hideous puppets, haunted by the memory of the passions of which we were much too afraid, and the exquisite temptations that we did not dare yield to, Youth, youth, there is nothing in the world but youth. Dorian Gray listened, open-eyed and wondering. The spray of lilac fell from his hand upon the gravel. A furry bee came and buzzed round it for a moment, then it began to scramble all over the fretted purple of the tiny blossoms. He watched it with that strange interest in trivial things that we try to develop when things of high import make us afraid, or when we are stirred by some new emotion for which we cannot find expression, or when some thought that terrifies us lays sudden siege to the brain and calls on us to yield. He saw it creeping into the stained trumpet of a Tyrian convolvulus. The flower seemed to quiver, and then swayed gently to and fro. Suddenly Hallward appeared at the door of their studio, and made frantic signs for them to come in. They turned to each other and smiled. "'I'm waiting,' cried Hallward. "'Do come in. The light is quite perfect, and you can bring your drinks.' They rose up and sauntered down the walk together. Two green and white butterflies fluttered past them, and in the pear tree at the end of the garden a thrush began to sing. "'You are glad to have met me, Mr. Gray.' said Lord Henry, looking at him. Yes, I am glad now. I wonder will I always be glad. Always. That is a dreadful word. It makes me shudder when I hear it. Women are so fond of using it. They spoil every romance by trying to make it last forever. It is a meaningless word, too. The only difference between a caprice and a lifelong passion is that the caprice lasts a little longer. 
As they entered the studio, Dorian Gray put his hand upon Lord Henry's arm. In that case, let our friendship be a caprice, he murmured, flushing at his own boldness, then stepped upon the platform and resumed his pose. Lord Henry flung himself into a large wicker armchair and watched him. The sweep and dash of the brush on the canvas made the only sound that broke the stillness, except when Hallward stepped back now and then to look at his work from a distance. In the slanting beams that had streamed through the open doorway, the dust danced and was golden. The heavy scent of the roses seemed to brood over everything. After about a quarter of an hour, Hallward stopped painting, looked for a long time at Dorian Gray, and then for a long time at the picture, biting the end of one of his huge brushes and smiling. "'It is quite finished,' he cried at last, and stooping down he wrote his name in thin vermilion letters on the left-hand corner of the canvas. Lord Henry came over and examined the picture, and certainly a wonderful work of art, and a wonderful likeness as well. "'My dear fellow, I congratulate you most warmly,' he said. "'Mr. Gray, come and look at yourself.' The lad started, as if awakened from some dream. "'Is it really finished?' he murmured, stepping down upon the platform. "'Quite finished,' said Hallward. "'And you sat splendidly today. "'I am awfully obliged to you.' "'That is entirely due to me,' broke in Lord Henry. "'Isn't it, Mr. Gray?' Dorian made no answer, but pressed listlessly in front of his picture and turned towards it. When he saw it, he drew back, and his cheeks flushed for a moment with pleasure.' A look of joy came into his eyes, as if he had recognized himself for the first time. He stood there, motionless and in wonder, dimly conscious that Hallward was speaking to him, but not catching the meaning of his words. The sense of his own beauty came on him like a revelation. He had never felt it before. Basil Hallward's compliments had seemed to be merely the charming exaggerations of friendship. He had listened to them, laughed at them, forgotten them. They had not influenced his nature. Then had come Lord Henry, with his strange panegyric on youth, his terrible warning of its brevity, that had stirred him at the time, and now, as he stood gazing at the shadow of his loveliness, the full reality of the description flashed across him. Yes, there would be a day when his face would be wrinkled and wizen, his eyes dim and colourless, the grace of his figure broken and deformed. The scarlet would pass away from his lips, and the gold steal from his hair. The life that was to make his soul would mar his body. He would become ignoble, hideous, and uncouth. As he thought of it, a sharp pang of pain struck like a knife across him, and made each delicate fibre of his nature quiver. His eyes deepened into amethyst, and a mist of tears came across them. He felt as if a hand of ice had been laid upon his heart. 
don't you like it cried hallward at last stung a little by the lad's silence and not understanding what it meant of course he likes it said lord henry who wouldn't like it it is one of the greatest things in modern art i will give you anything you ask for it i must have it it is not my property harry whose property is it dorian's of course he is a very lucky fellow how sad it is murmured dorian gray with his eyes still fixed upon his own portrait how sad it is i shall grow old and horrid and dreadful but this picture will remain always young it will never be older than this particular day of june if it was only the other way if it was i who were to be always young and the picture that were to grow old for this oh for this i would give everything yes there is nothing in the whole world i would not give you would hardly care for that arrangement basil cried lord henry laughing <laughs> it would be rather hard lines on you i should object very strongly harry dorian gray turned and looked at him i believe you would basil you like your art better than your friends i am no more to you than a, a green bronze figure hardly as much i dare say hallward stared in amazement it was so unlike dorian to speak like that what had happened he seemed almost angry his face was flushed and his cheeks burning yes he continued i am less to you than your ivory hermes or your silver fawn you will like them always how long will you like me till i have my first wrinkle i suppose i know now that when one loses one's good looks one, whatever they may be one loses everything your picture has taught me that lord henry is perfectly right youth is the only thing worth having when i find that i am growing old i will kill myself hallward turned pale and caught his hand dorian dorian he cried don't talk like that i have never had such a friend as you and i shall never have another you are not jealous of material things are you i am jealous of everything whose beauty does not die i am jealous of the portrait you have painted of me why should it keep what i must lose every moment that passes takes something from me and gives something to it oh if it was only the other way if it if the picture could change and i could always be what i am now why did you paint it it will mock me some day mock me horribly the hot tears welled into his eyes he tore his hand away and flinging himself onto the van he buried his face in the cushions as if he were praying this is your doing harry said hallward bitterly my doing yes yours and you know it lord henry shrugged his shoulders it is the real dorian gray that is all he answered it is not if it is not what have i to do with it you should have gone away when i asked you i stayed when you asked me harry i can't quarrel with two of my best friends at once but between you both you have made me hate the finest piece of work i have ever done and i will destroy it what is it but canvas and colour i will not let it come across three lives and mar them dorian gray lifted his golden head from the pillow and looked at him with pallid face and tear-stained eyes as he walked over to the 
deal painting-table that was set beneath the large curtained window. What was he doing there? His fingers were straying among the litter of tin tubes and dry brushes seeking for something. Yes, it was a long palette-knife, with its thin blade of lithe steel. He had found it at last. He was going to rip up the canvas. With a stifled sob, he leaped from the couch, and, rushing over to Hallward, tore the knife out of his hand and flung it to the end of the studio. "'Don't, Basil, don't!' he cried. "'It would be murder!' "'I'm glad you appreciate my work at last, Dorian,' said Hallward coldly, when he had recovered from his surprise. "'I never thought you would.' "'Appreciate it?' "'I am in love with it, Basil. It is part of myself. I feel that.' "'Well, as soon as you are dry, you shall be varnished and framed and sent home. "'Then you can do what you like with yourself.' "'And he walked across the room and rang the bell for tea. "'You will have tea, of course, Dorian, and so will you, Harry. "'Tea is the only simple pleasure left to us.' "'I don't like simple pleasures,' said Lord Henry, "'and I don't like scenes, except on the stage.' What absurd fellows you are, both of you. I wonder who it was to find man as the rational animal. It was the most premature definition ever given. Man is many things, but he is not rational. I am glad he is not, after all, though I wish you chaps would not squabble over the picture. You had much better let me have it, Basil. The silly boy doesn't really want it as I do. "'If you let anyone have it but me, Basil, I will never forgive you,' cried Dorian Gray. "'And I don't allow people to call me a silly boy. "'You know the picture is yours, Dorian. I gave it to you before it existed.' "'And you know you have been a little silly, Mr. Gray, "'and that you shouldn't really mind being called a boy. "'I should have minded very much this morning, Lord Henry.' "'Oh!' This morning? Oh, you have lived since then. There came a knock to the door, and the butler entered with the tea tray and set it down upon a small Japanese table. There was a rattle of cups and saucers, and the hissing of a fluted Georgian urn. Two globe-shaped china dishes were brought out by a page. Dorian Gray went over and poured the tea out. The two men sauntered languidly to the table and examined what was under the covers. "'Let us go to the theatre to-night,' said Lord Henry. "'There is sure to be something on somewhere. "'I have promised to dine at White's. "'But it is only with an old friend, "'so I can send him why and say that I am ill "'or that I am prevented from coming "'in consequence of a subsequent engagement. "'I think it would be a rather nice excuse. "'It would have the surprise of candour. "'It is such a bore putting on one's dress clothes,' "'muttered Hallward.' and when one has them on, they are so horrid. Yes, answered Lord Henry dreamily, the costume of our day is detestable. It is so sombre, so depressing. Sin is the only colour element left in modern life. You really must not say things like that before Dorian, Harry. Before which Dorian? The one who is pouring out the tea for us, or the one in the picture? before either. I should like to come to the theatre with you, Lord Henry, said the lad. Then you shall come, and you will come too, Basil, won't you? I can't, really. 
I would sooner not. I have a lot of work to do. Well, then you and I will go alone, Mr. Gray. I should like that awfully. Basil Hallward bit his lip and walked over, cup in hand to the picture. I will stay with the real Dorian, he said sadly. Is it the real Dorian? cried the original of the portrait, running across to him. Am I really like that? Yes, you are just like that. How wonderful, Basil! At least you are like it in appearance. But it will never alter, said Hallward. That is something. What a fuss people make about fidelity, murmured Lord Henry. And after all, it is purely a question of physiology. It has nothing to do with our own will. It is either an unfortunate accident or an unpleasant result of temperament. Young men want to be faithful, and are not. Old men want to be faithless, and cannot. That is all one can say. Don't go to the theatre tonight, Dorian. Stop. Dine with me. I can't, really. Why? Because I've promised Lord Henry to go with him. He won't like you any better for keeping your promises. He always breaks his own. I beg you not to go. Dorian Gray laughed and shook his head. I entreat you. The lad hesitated, and looked over at Lord Henry, who was watching them from the tea-table with an amused smile. I must go, Basil, he answered. Very well, said Hallward, and he walked over and laid his cup down on the tray. It is rather late, and as you have to dress, you'd better not lose no time. Good-bye, Harry. Good-bye, Dorian. Come see me soon. Come to-morrow. Certainly. You won't forget? No, of course not. And Harry? Yes, Basil? Remember what I asked you when in the garden this morning. I have forgotten it. I trust you. I wish I could trust myself, said Lord Henry, laughing. Come, Mr. Gray, my hansom is outside, and I can drop you at your own place. Good-bye, Basil. It has been a most interesting afternoon. As the door closed behind them, Hallward flung himself down on a sofa, and a look of pain came into his face. End of chapter 2 of The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde Read by John Gonzales, www.johngon.com Chapter 3 One afternoon, a month later, Dorian Gray was reclining in a luxurious armchair in the little library of Lord Henry's house in Curzon Street. It was, in its way, a very charming room, with its high-panelled wainscoting of olive-stained oak, its cream-coloured frieze and ceiling of raised plaster-work, and its brick-dust-felt carpet strewn with long, fringed silk Persian rugs. On a tiny satinwood table stood a statuette of Clodion, and beside it lay a copy of Les Saints Nouveaux, bound from Margaret au Volat 
by Clovis Eve, and powdered with the gilt daisies that the queen had selected for her device. Some large blue china jars, filled with parrot tulips, were ranged on the mantel-shelf, and through the small leaded panes of the window streamed the apricot-colored light of a summer's day in London. Lord Henry had not come in yet. He was always late on principle, his principle being that punctuality is the thief of time. So the lad was looking rather sulky, as with listless fingers he turned over the pages of an elaborately illustrated edition of Manon Lescaut that he had found in one of the bookcases. The formal, monotonous ticking of the Louis XIV clock annoyed him. Once or twice he thought of going away. At last he heard a light step outside, and the door opened. "'How late you are, Harry,' he murmured. "'I am afraid it is not Harry, Mr. Gray,' said a woman's voice. He glanced quickly around and rose to his feet. "'I beg your pardon. I thought—' "'You thought it was my husband. It is only his wife. You must let me introduce myself. I know you quite well by your photographs. I think my husband has got twenty-seven of them.' "'Not twenty-seven, Lady Henry?' "'Well, twenty-six, then. "'And I saw you with him the other night at the opera.' "'She laughed nervously as she spoke, "'and watched him with her vague forget-me-not eyes. "'She was a curious woman, "'whose dresses always looked as if they had been designed in a rage "'and put on in a tempest. "'She was always in love with somebody, "'and, as her passion was never returned, "'she had kept all her illusions.' She tried to look picturesque, but only succeeded in being untidy. Her name was Victoria, and she had a perfect mania for going to church. That was at Lohengrin, Lady Henry, I think. Yes, it was a dear Lohengrin. I like Wagner's music much better than any other music. It is so loud that one can talk the whole time, without people hearing what one says. That is a great advantage. "'Don't you think so, Mr. Gray?' The same nervous staccato laugh broke from her thin lips, and her fingers began to play with a long paper-knife. Dorian smiled, and shook his head. "'I'm afraid I don't think so, Lady Henry. I never talk during music, at least during good music. If one hears bad music, it is one's duty to drown it by conversation.' "'Ah! That is one of Harry's views, isn't it, Mr. Gray?' "'But you must not think I don't like good music. I adore it. But I am afraid of it. It makes me too romantic. I have simply worshipped pianists. Two at a time, sometimes. I don't know what it is about them. Perhaps it is that they are foreigners. They all are, aren't they? Even those that are born in England become foreigners after a time, don't they? It is so clever of them, and such a compliment to art. Makes it quite cosmopolitan, doesn't it?' "'You've never been to any of my parties, have you, Mr. Gray? "'You must come. "'I can't afford orchids, but I spare no expense in foreigners. "'They make one's rooms look so picturesque. "'Ah, oh, but here is Harry. "'Harry, I came in to look for you, to ask you something. "'I forget what it was. "'And I found Mr. Gray here. "'But we've had such a pleasant chat about music. "'We have quite the same views. "'No. "'No, I think our views are quite different. "'But he has been most pleasant.' I am so glad I've seen him. I am charmed, my love, quite charmed. 
said Lord Henry, elevating his dark crescent-shaped eyebrows, and looking at them both with an amused smile. "'So sorry I am late, Dorian. I went to look after a piece of old brocade in Wardour Street, and had to bargain for hours for it. Nowadays people know the price of everything and the value of nothing.' "'I'm afraid I must be going,' exclaimed Lady Henry, after an awkward silence, with her silly sudden laugh. "'I have promised to drive with a duchess. Good-bye, Mr. Gray. "'Good-bye, Harry. You are dining out, I suppose. So am I. Perhaps I shall see you at Lady Thornbury's.' "'I dare say, my dear,' said Lord Henry, shutting the door behind her as she flitted out of the room, looking like a bird of paradise that had been out in the rain.' and leaving a faint odour of patchouli behind her. Then he shook hands with Dorian Gray, lit a cigarette, and flung himself down on the sofa. "'Never marry a woman with straw-coloured hair, Dorian,' he said, after a few puffs. "'Why, Harry?' "'Because they are so sentimental. But I like sentimental people. Never marry at all, Dorian. Men marry because they are tired, women because they are curious.' Both are disappointed. I don't think I'm likely to marry, Harry. I'm too much in love. This is one of your aphorisms. I'm putting it into practice, as I do everything you say. Whom are you in love with? said Lord Henry, looking at him with a curious smile. With an actress, said Dorian Gray, blushing. Lord Henry shrugged his shoulders. That is a rather commonplace debut, he murmured. You would not say so if you saw her, Harry. Who is she? Her name is Sybil Vane. Never heard of her. No one has. People will some day, however. She is a genius. My dear boy, no woman is a genius. Women are a decorative sex. They never have anything to say, but they say it charmingly. They represent the triumph of matter over mind, just as men represent the triumph of mind over morals. There are only two kinds of women, the plain and the coloured. The plain women are very useful. If you want to gain a reputation for respectability, you have merely to take them down to supper. The other women are very charming. They commit one mistake, however. They paint in order to try to look young. Our grandmothers painted in order to try to talk brilliantly. Rouge and Esprit used to go together. That has all gone out now. As long as a woman can look ten years younger than her own daughter, she is perfectly satisfied. As for conversation, there are only five women in London worth talking to, and two of these can't be admitted into decent society. However, tell me about your genius. How long have you known her? About three weeks. Not so much. About two weeks and two days. How did you come across her? I will tell you, Harry, but you mustn't be unsympathetic about it. After all, it never would have happened if I had not met you. You filled me with a wild desire to know everything about life. For days after I met you, something seemed to throb in my veins— as I lounged in the park or strolled down Piccadilly, I used to look at every one who passed me, and wonder with a mad curiosity what sort of lives they led. Some of them fascinated me, others filled me with terror. There was an exquisite poison in the air. I had a passion for sensations. 
one evening, about seven o'clock, I determined to go out in search of some adventure. I felt that this grey, monstrous London of ours, with its myriads of people, its splendid sinners, and its sordid sins, as you once said, must have something in store for me. I fancied a thousand things. The mere danger gave me a sense of delight. I remember what you had said to me on that wonderful night when we first dined together, about the search for beauty being the poisonous secret of life. I don't know what I expected, but I went out, and wandered eastward, soon losing my way in a labyrinth of grimy streets and black grassless squares. About half-past eight, I passed by a little third-rate theatre with a great flaring gas-jets and gaudy playbills. A hideous Jew, in the most amazing waistcoat I have ever beheld in my life, was standing at the entrance, smoking a, a vile cigar. He had greasy ringlets, and an enormous diamond blazed in the centre of a soiled shirt. "'Have a box, my lord,' he said when he saw me, and he took off his hat with an act of gorgeous civility. "'There was something about him, Harry, that amused me. He was such a monster.' You will laugh at me, I know, but I really went in and paid a whole guinea for a stage-box. To the present day I can't make out why I did so, and yet if I hadn't— oh, My dear Harry, if I hadn't, I would have missed the greatest romance of my life. I see you are laughing. It is horrid of you. I am not laughing, Dorian. At least I am not laughing at you— but you should not say the greatest romance of your life. You should say the first romance of your life. You will always be loved, and you will always be in love with love. There are exquisite things in store for you. This is merely the beginning. Do you think my nature so shallow? cried Dorian Gray angrily. No. I think your nature so deep. How do you mean? My dear boy, people only love once in their lives are really shallow people. What they call their loyalty and their fidelity, I call either the lethargy of custom or the lack of imagination. Faithlessness is to the emotional life what consistency is to the intellectual life. Simply a confession of failure. But I don't want to interrupt you. Go on with your story. Well, I found myself seated in a horrid little private box with a vulgar drop scene staring me in the face. I looked out behind the curtain and surveyed the house. It was a tawdry affair, all cupids and cornucopias, like a third-rate wedding cake. The gallery and pit were fairly full, but the two rows of dingy stalls were quite empty, and there was hardly a person in what I suppose they called the dress circle. Women went about with oranges and ginger beer, and there was a terrible consumption of nuts going on. It must have been just like the palmy days of British drama. Just like, I should fancy, and very horrid. I began to wonder what on earth I should do when I caught sight of the playbill. What do you think the play was, Harry? I should think, uh, the idiot boy, or dumb but innocent. Our fathers used to like that sort of piece, I believe. The longer I live, Dorian, the more keenly I feel that whatever was good for our fathers is not good enough for us. 
in art as in politics, les grands prix ont toujours tort. This play was good enough for us, Harry. It was Romeo and Juliet. I must admit, I was rather annoyed at the idea of seeing Shakespeare done in such a wretched hole of a place. Still, I felt interested in a sort of way. At any rate, I determined to wait for the first act. There was a dreadful orchestra, presided over by a young Jew who sat at a cracked piano that nearly drove me away. But at last the drop scene was drawn up and the play began. Romeo was a stout elderly gentleman with corked eyebrows, a husky tragedy voice, and a figure like a beer-barrel. Mercutio was almost as bad. He was played by the low comedian who had introduced gags of his own and went on most familiar terms with the pit. They were as grotesque as the scenery, and that looked as if it had come out of a pantomime of fifty years ago. But Juliet? Harry... Imagine a girl, hardly seventeen years of age, with a little flower-like face, a small Greek head with plaited coils of dark brown hair, eyes that were violet wells of passion, lips that were like the petals of a rose. She was the loveliest thing I'd ever seen in my life. You said to me once that pathos left you unmoved, but the beauty, mere beauty, could fill your eyes with tears. I tell you, Harry... I could hardly see this girl for the mist of tears that came across me. And her voice, oh, I never heard such a voice. It was very low at first, with deep, mellow notes that seemed to fall singly upon one's ear. Then it became a little louder, and sounded like a flute, or a distant hatbois. In the garden scene it had all the tremulous ecstasy that one hears just before dawn when nightingales are singing. There were moments later on when it had the wild passion of violins. You know how a voice can stir one. Your voice and the voice of Sybil Vane are two things that I shall never forget. When I close my eyes, I hear them, and each one of them is saying something different. I don't know which to follow. Why should I not love her? Harry, I do love her. She is everything to me in life. Night after night I go to see her play. One evening she is Rosalind, the next she is Imogen. I have seen her die in the gloom of an Italian tomb, sucking the poison from her lover's lips. I have watched her wandering through the forest of Arden, disguised as a pretty boy in hose and doublet and dainty cap. She has been mad, and has come into the presence of a guilty king, and has given him rue to wear with bitter herbs to taste of. She has been innocent, and the black hands of jealousy has crushed her reed-like throat. I have seen her in every age and in every costume. Ordinary women never appeal to one's imagination. They are limited to the century. No glamour ever transfigures them. One knows their minds as easily as one knows their bonnets. One can always find them. There is no mystery in one of them. They ride in the park in the morning and chatter at tea-parties in the afternoon. They have the stereotyped smile in their fashionable manner. They are quite obvious. But an actress? How different an actress is. Why didn't you tell me that the only thing worth loving is an actress? Because I've loved so many of them, Dorian. Oh, yes, horrid people with dyed hair and painted faces... Don't run down dyed hair and painted faces. There is an extraordinary charm in them sometimes. I wish now I had not told you about Sybil Vane. 
"'You could not have helped telling me, Dorian. "'All through your life you will tell me everything you do.' "'Yes, Harry, I believe that is true. "'I cannot help telling you things. "'You have a curious influence over me. "'If I ever did a crime, I would come and confide it to you. "'You would understand me. "'People like you.' The willful sunbeams of life don't commit crimes, Dorian, but I am much obliged for the compliment all the same. And now, tell me, reach me the matches like a good boy. Thanks. Tell me, where are your relations with Sybil Vane? Dorian Gray leaped to his feet with flushed cheeks and burning eyes. Harry, Sybil Vane is sacred. "'It is only the sacred things that are worth touching, Dorian,' said Lord Henry, with a strange touch of pathos in his voice. "'But why should you be annoyed? I suppose she will be yours some day. When one is in love, one always begins by deceiving oneself, and one always ends by deceiving others. That is what the world calls romance. But you know her, at any rate, I suppose?' "'Of course I know her.' On the first night I was at the theatre, the horrid old Jew came round to the box after the performance was over, and offered to bring me behind the scenes and introduce me to her. I was furious with him, and told him that Juliet had been dead for hundreds of years, and that her body was lying in a marble tomb in Verona. I think, from, from his blank look of amazement, that he thought I had taken too much champagne or something. I am not surprised. I was not surprised either. Then he asked me if I wrote for any of the newspapers. I told him I never even read them. He seemed terribly disappointed in that, and confided to me that all the dramatic critics were in a conspiracy against him, and that they were all to be bought. I believe he was quite right there, but on the other hand, most of them are not at all expensive. Well, he seemed to think they were beyond his means. By this time the lights were being put out in the theatre, and I had to go. He wanted me to try some cigars, which he strongly recommended, I declined. The next night, of course, I arrived at the theatre again. When he saw me, he made a low bow, and assured me that I was a patron of art. He was a most offensive brute, though he had an extraordinary passion for Shakespeare. He told me once, with an air of pride, that his three bankruptcies were due entirely to the poet, whom he insisted on in calling the Bard. He seemed to think it a distinction. It was a distinction, my dear Dorian, a great distinction. But when did you first speak to Miss Sibyl Vane? The third night. She had been playing Rosalind. I could not help going around. I had thrown her some flowers, and she looked at me. At least I fancied she had. The old Jew was persistent. He seemed determined to bring me behind, so I consented. It was curious, my not wanting to know her, wasn't it? "'No, I don't think so.' "'My dear Harry, why?' "'I'll tell you some other time. Now I want to know about the girl. "'Sybil? Oh, she was so shy, so gentle. "'There is something of a child about her.' "'Her eyes opened wide in exquisite wonder when I told her what I thought of her performance. "'And she seemed quite unconscious of her power. "'I think we were both rather nervous.' The old Jew stood grinning at the doorway of the dusty green room, making elaborate speeches about us both, while we stood looking at each other like children. He would insist on calling me my lord, 
"'so I had to assure Sybil that I was not anything of the kind. "'She said quite simply to me, "'You look more like a prince.' "'Upon my word, Dorian, Miss Sybil knows how to pay compliments. "'You don't understand her, Harry. "'She regarded me merely as a person in a play. "'She knows nothing of life. "'She lives with her mother, a faded, tired woman "'who played Lady Capulet in a sort of magenta dressing wrapper on the first night, "'and it looks as if she'd seen better days. "'I know that look. It always depresses me.' The Jew wanted to tell me our history, but I said it did not interest me. You are quite right. There was always something infinitely mean about other people's tragedies. Sybil is the only thing I care about. What is it to me where she came from? From a little head to a little feet, she is absolutely and entirely divine. I go to see her act every night of my life, and every night she is more marvellous. "'That is the reason, I suppose, that you will never dine with me now. "'I thought you must have some curious romance on hand. "'You have, but it's not quite what I expected. "'My dear Harry, we either lunch or sup together every day, "'and I've been to the opera with you several times. "'You always come dreadfully late. "'Well, I can't help going to see Sybil play, even if it is only for an act.' I get hungry for her presence, and when I think of the wonderful soul that is hidden away in that little ivory body, I am filled with awe. You can dine with me tonight, Dorian, can't you? He shook his head. Tonight she is Imogen, he answered. Tomorrow night she will be Juliet. When is she Sybil Vane? Never. Hmm. I congratulate you. How horrid you are. She is all the great heroines of the world in one. She is more than an individual. You laugh. But I tell you, she has genius. I love her. And I must make her love me. You, who know all the secrets of life, tell me how to charm Sybil Vane to love me. I want to make Romeo jealous. I want the dead lovers of the world to hear our laughter and grow sad. I want a breath of our passion to stir their dust into consciousness, to wake their ashes into pain. My God, Harry, how I worship her! He was walking up and down the room as he spoke. Hectic spots of red burned on his cheeks. He was terribly excited. Lord Henry watched him with a subtle sense of pleasure. How different he was now from the shy, frightened boy he had met in Basil Hallward's studio. His nature had developed like a flower, had borne blossoms of scarlet flame. Out of its secret hiding-place had crept his soul, and desire had come to meet it on the way. "'And what do you propose to do?' said Lord Henry at last. "'I want you and Basil to come with me some night and see her act. I've not the slightest fear of the result.' You won't be able to refuse to recognize her genius. Then we must get her out of the Jew's hands. She's bound to him for three years. At least two years and eight months for the present time. I will have to pay him something, of course. When all that is settled, I will take a West End theatre and bring her out properly. She will make the world as mad as she has made me. Impossible, dear boy. Yes, she will. She has not merely art, consummate art instinct in her, but she has personality, too. And you have often told me that it is personalities, not principles, that move the age. Well, 
what night shall we go? Let me see. Today is Tuesday. Let us fix tomorrow. She plays Juliet tomorrow. All right, the Bristol at eight o'clock, and I will get Basil. Not eight. Harry, please, half past six. We must be there before the curtain rises. You must see her in the first act, where she meets Romeo. Half past six? What an hour! It'll be like having a meat tea. However, just as you wish. Shall you see Basil between this and then, or shall I write to him? Dear Basil, I've not laid eyes on him for a week. It is rather horrid of me, as he has sent me my portrait in the most wonderful frame designed by himself. And though I am a little jealous of it for being a whole month younger than I am, I must admit that I delight in it. Perhaps you had better write him. I don't want to see him alone. He says things that annoy me. Lord Henry smiled. He gives you good advice, I suppose. People are always giving away things they need most themselves. You don't mean to say that Basil has got any passion or any romance in him? I don't know whether he has any passion, but he certainly has romance, said Lord Henry with an amused look in his eyes. Has he never let you know that? Never. I must ask him about it. I'm rather surprised to hear it. He is the best of fellows, but he seems to me to be just a bit of a philistine. Since I've known you, Harry, I have discovered that. Basil, my dear boy, puts everything that is charming in him into his work. The consequence is that he has nothing left for life but his prejudices, his principles, and his common sense. The only artists I have ever known who are personally delightful are bad artists. Good artists give everything to their art, and consequently are perfectly uninteresting in themselves. A great poet, a really great poet, is the most unpoetical of all creatures. But inferior poets are absolutely fascinating. The worse their rhymes are, the more picturesque they look. The mere fact of having published a book of second-rate sonnets makes a man quite irresistible. He lives the poetry that he cannot write. The others write the poetry that they dare not realize. I wonder, is that really so, Harry? said Dorian Gray, putting some perfume on his handkerchief out of a small gold-topped bottle that stood on the table. It must be, if you say so. And now I must be off. Imogen is waiting for me. And don't forget about tomorrow. Good-bye. As he left the room, Lord Henry's heavy eyelids drooped, and he began to think. Certainly few people had ever interested him so much as Dorian Gray, and yet the lad's mad adoration of someone else caused him not the slightest pang of annoyance or jealousy. He was pleased by it. It made him a more interesting study. He had always been enthralled by the methods of science, but the ordinary subject matter of science had seemed to him trivial and of no import. And so he had begun by vivisecting himself, as he had ended by vivisecting others. Human life. That appeared to him as the one thing worth investigating. There was nothing else of any value compared to it. It was true that, as one watched life in its curious crucible of pain and pleasure, one could not wear over one's face a mask of glass, 
or keep the sulphurous fumes from troubling the brain and making the imagination turbid with monstrous fancies and misshapen dreams. There were poisons so subtle that to know their properties one had to sicken of them. There were maladies so strange that one had to pass through them if one sought to understand their nature. And yet, what a great reward one received! How wonderful the whole world became to one! To note the curious hard logic of passion, and the emotional colored life of the intellect, to observe where they met, and where they separated, at one point they became one, and at what point they were at discord, there was a delight in that. What matter was the cost? One could never pay too high a price for any sensation. He was conscious, and the thought brought a gleam of pleasure into his brown agate eyes, that it was through certain words of his, musical words said with musical utterance, that Dorian Gray's soul had turned to this white girl and bowed in worship before her. To a large extent, the lad was his own creation. He had made him premature. That was something. Ordinary people waited till life disclosed to them its secret. But to the few, to the elect, the mysteries of life were revealed before the veil was drawn away. Sometimes this was the effect of art, and chiefly of the art of literature, which dealt immediately with the passions and the intellect. But now and then a complex personality took the place, and assumed the office of art was indeed, in its way, a real work of art, life having its elaborate masterpieces, just as poetry has, or sculpture, or painting. Yes, the lad was premature. He was gathering his harvest while it was yet spring. The pulse and passion of youth were in him, but he was becoming self-conscious. It was delightful to watch him. With his beautiful face and his beautiful soul, he was a thing to wonder at. It was no matter how it all ended, or was destined to end. He was like one of those gracious figures in a pageant or a play, whose joys seemed too remote from one. And but whose sorrows stir one's sense of beauty, and whose wounds are like red roses. Soul and body, body and soul, how mysterious they were! There was animalism in the soul, and the body had its moments of spirituality. The senses could refine, and the intellect could degrade. Who could say where the fleshly impulse ceased, or the psychical impulse began? How shallow were the arbitrary definitions of ordinary psychologists! And yet, how difficult to decide between the claims of the various schools! Was the soul a shadow seated in the house of sin? Or was the body really in the soul, as Giordano Bruno thought? The separation of spirit from matter was a mystery, and the union of spirit with matter was a mystery also. He began to wonder whether we should ever make psychology so absolute a science that each little spring of life should be revealed to us. As it was, we always misunderstood ourselves, and rarely understood others. Experience was of no ethical value. It was merely the name we gave to our mistakes. Men had, as a rule, regarded it as a mode of warning, had claimed for it a certain moral efficacy in the formation of character 
had praised it as something that taught us what to follow and showed us what to avoid. But there was no motive power in experience. It was as little of an active cause as conscience itself. All that it really demonstrated was that our future would be the same as our past, and that the sin we had done once, and with loathing, we would do many times with joy. It was clear to him that the experimental method was only a method by which one could arrive at any scientific analysis of the passions, and certainly Dorian Gray was a subject made to his hand, and seemed to promise rich and fruitful results. His sudden mad love for Sybil was a psychological phenomenon of no small interest. There was no doubt that curiosity had much to do with it, curiosity and the desire for new experiences. Yet it was not a simple, but rather a very complex passion. What there was in it, of the purely sensuous instinct of boyhood, had been transformed by the workings of the imagination, changed into something that seemed to the boy himself to be remote from sense, and was, for that very reason, all the more dangerous. It was the passions about whose origin we deceived ourselves that tyrannized most strongly over us. Our weakest motives were those of whose nature we were conscious. It often happened that, when we thought we were experimenting on others, we were really experimenting on ourselves. While Lord Henry sat dreaming of these things, a knock came to the door, and his valet entered, and reminded him it was time to dress for dinner. He got up, looked out onto the street. The sunset had smitten into scarlet gold the upper windows of the houses opposite. The panes glowed like glass of heated metal. The sky above was like a faded rose. He thought of Dorian Gray's young, fiery-colored life, and wondered how it was all going to end. When he arrived home, about half-past twelve o'clock, he saw a telegram lying on the hall table. He opened it, and found it was from Dorian. It was to tell him that he was engaged to be married to Sybil Vane. End of chapter 3 of the picture of Dorian Gray, by Oscar Wilde. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Picture of Dorian Gray, by Oscar Wilde. As read by John Gonzales, www.johngon.org. Dot com. Chapter 4 "'I suppose you have heard the news, Basil,' said Lord Henry on the following evening, as Hollywood was shown into a little private room at the Bristol, where dinner had been laid for three. "'No, Harry,' answered Hallward, giving his hat and coat to the bowing waiter. "'What is it? Nothing about politics, I hope?' They don't interest me. There is hardly a single person in the House of Commons worth painting, though many of them would be the better for a little whitewashing. Dorian Gray is engaged to be married, said Lord Henry, watching him as he spoke. Hallward turned perfectly pale, and a curious look flashed for a moment into his eyes, and then passed away, leaving them dull. 
Dorian engaged to be married?' he cried. "'Impossible. It is perfectly true. To whom? To some little actress or other. I can't believe it. Dorian is far too sensible. Dorian is far too wise not to do foolish things now and then, my dear Basil. "'Marriage is hardly a thing that one can do now and then, Harry,' said Hallward, smiling. "'Except in America. But I didn't say he was married. I said he was engaged to be married. There is a great difference. I have a distinct remembrance of being married, but I have no recollection at all of being engaged. I am inclined to think that I was never engaged. But think of Dorian's birth and position and wealth. It would be absurd for him to marry so much beneath him. If you want him to marry this girl, tell him that, Basil. He is sure to do it then. Whenever a man does a thoroughly stupid thing— it is always for the noblest motives. I hope the girl is good, Harry. I don't want to see Dorian tied to some vile creature who might degrade his nature and ruin his intellect. Oh, she is more than good. She is beautiful, murmured Lord Henry, sipping a glass of vermouth and orange bitters. Dorian says she is beautiful, and he is not often wrong about things of that kind. Your portrait of him has quickened his appreciation of the personal appearance of other people. It has had that excellent effect, among others. We are to see her tonight, if that boy doesn't forget his appointment. But do you approve of it, Harry? asked Hallward, walking up and down the room and biting his lip. You can't approve of it, really. It is some silly infatuation. I never approve or disapprove of anything now. It is an absurd attitude to take towards life. We are not sent into the world to air our moral prejudices. I never take any notice of what common people say, and I never interfere with what charming people do. If a personality infatuates me, whatever the personality chooses to do is absolutely delightful to me. Dorian Gray falls in love with a beautiful girl who acts Shakespeare and proposes to marry her? Why not? If he wedded Messalina, he would be none the less interesting. You know I am not a champion of marriage. The real drawback to marriage is that it makes one unselfish, and unselfish people are colourless. They lack individuality. Still, there are certain temperaments that marriage makes more complex. They retain their egotism, and add to it many other egos. They are forced to have more than one life. They become more highly organized. Besides, every experience is of value, and whatever one may say against marriage, it is certainly an experience. I hope that Dorian Gray will make this girl his wife, passionately adore her for six months, and then suddenly become fascinated by someone else. He would be a wonderful study. You don't mean all that, Harry. You know you don't. If Dorian Gray's life were spoiled, no one would be sorrier than yourself. You are much better than you pretend to be. Lord Henry laughed. <laughs> the reason we all like to think so well of others is that we are all afraid for ourselves. The basis of optimism is sheer terror. We think that we are generous because we credit our neighbour with those virtues— that are likely to benefit ourselves. We praise the banker that we may overdraw our account, and we find good qualities in the highwayman in the hope 
that he may spare our pockets. I mean everything I have said. I have the greatest contempt for optimism, and as for a spoiled life, no life is spoiled but one whose growth is arrested. If you want to mar a nature, you merely have to reform it. But here is Dorian himself. He will tell you more than I can. Oh, my dear Harry, my dear Basil, you both must congratulate me, said the boy, throwing off his evening cape with his satin-lined wings, and shaking each of his friends by the hand in turn. I have never been so happy. Of course, it is sudden, all really delightful things are, and yet it seems to me to be the one thing I have been looking for all my life. He was flushed with excitement and pleasure, and looked extraordinarily handsome. "'I hope you will always be very happy, Dorian,' said Hallward. "'But I don't quite forgive you for not letting me know of your engagement. You let Harry know.' "'And I don't forgive you for being late for dinner,' broke in Lord Henry, putting his hand on the lad's shoulder and smiling as he spoke. "'Come, let us sit down and try what the new chef here is like.' "'and then you will tell us how it all came about.' "'There's really not much to tell,' cried Dorian, "'as they took their seats at the small round table. "'What happened was simply this. "'After I left you yesterday evening, Harry, "'I had some dinner at that curious Italian restaurant "'in uh, Rupert Street you introduced me to, "'and went down afterwards to the theatre. "'Sybil was playing Rosalind.' Of course, the scenery was dreadful, and the Orlando absurd, but Sybil? Oh, you should have seen her. When she came on in her boy's dress, she was perfectly wonderful. She wore a, a moss-coloured velvet jerkin with cinnamon sleeves, a slim brown cross-cutted hose, a dainty little green cap with a hawk's feather caught in her jewel, and a hooded cloak lined with dull red. She never seemed to me more exquisite.' She had all the delicate grace of that Tanagra figurine that you have in your study, Basil. Her hair clustered round her face like dark leaves round a pale rose. As for her acting, well, you will see her tonight. She is simply a born artist. I sat in the dingy box absolutely enthralled. I forgot I was in London, and in the nineteenth century I was away with my love in a forest that no man had ever seen. After the performance was over, I went behind and spoke to her. As we were sitting together, suddenly there came a look into her eyes that I had never seen there before. My lips moved towards hers. We kissed each other. I, I can't describe to you what I felt at that moment. It seemed to me that all my life had been narrowed to one perfect point of rose-coloured joy. She trembled all over and shook like a white narcissus. Then she flung herself on her knees and kissed my hands. I feel that I should not tell you all of this, but I can't help it. Of course, our engagement is a dead secret. She has not even told her own mother. I don't know what my guardians will say. Lord Radley is sure to be furious. But I don't care. I shall be of age in less than a year, and then I can do what I like. I have been right, Basil, haven't I? To take my love out of poetry and to find my wife in Shakespeare's plays? Lips that Shakespeare taught to speak have whispered their secret in my ear. I have had the arms of Rosalind around me, and kissed Juliet on the mouth. Yes, Dorian, I suppose you were right, said Hallward, slowly. Have you seen her today? 
asked Lord Henry. Dorian shook his head. I left her in the forest of Arden. I shall find her in an orchard in Verona. Lord Henry sipped his champagne in a meditative manner. At what particular point did you mention the word marriage, Dorian? And what did she say in answer? Perhaps you forgot all about it. My dear Harry, I did not treat it as a business transaction, and I did not make a formal proposal. I told her that I loved her, and she said she was not worthy to be my wife. Not worthy. Why, the whole world is nothing to me compared to her. Women are wonderfully practical, murmured Lord Henry, much more practical than we are. In situations of that kind, we often forget to say anything about marriage, and they always remind us. Hallward laid his hand upon his arm. Don't, Harry. You have annoyed Dorian. He is not like other men. He would never bring misery upon anyone. His nature is far too fine for that. Lord Henry looked across the table. Dorian is never annoyed with me, he answered. I ask the question for the best reason possible, for the only reason, indeed, that excuses one asking any question. Curiosity. I have a theory that it always happens that women propose to us, and not we who propose to the women, except, of course, in middle-class life. But then the middle classes are not modern. Dorian Gray laughed and tossed his head. <laughs> You are quite incorrigible, Harry, but I don't mind. It is impossible to be angry with you. When you see Sybil Vane, you will feel that the man who could wrong her would be a beast without a heart. I cannot understand how anyone can wish to shame what he loves. I love Sybil Vane. I wish to place her on a pedestal of gold and to see the world worship the woman who is mine. What is marriage? An irrevocable vow and it is an irrevocable vow that I want to take. Her trust makes me faithful, her belief makes me good. When I am with her, I regret all that you have taught me. I become different from what you have known me to be. I am changed, and the mere touch of Sybil Vane's hands makes me forget you and all your wrong, fascinating, poisonous, delightful theories. "'You will always like me, Dorian,' said Lord Henry. "'Will you have some coffee, you fellows? Uh, "'Wait her, bring coffee, and fine, uh, fine champagne, and some cigarettes. Uh, "'No, no, no, don't mind the cigarettes, I have some. "'Basil, I can't allow you to smoke cigars. "'You must have a cigarette. "'A cigarette is a perfect type of a perfect pleasure. "'It is exquisite, and it leaves one unsatisfied. "'What more can one want?' "'Yes, Dorian.' You will always be fond of me. I represent to you all the sins you have never had the courage to commit. What nonsense you talk, Harry! cried Dorian Gray, lighting a cigarette from a fire-breathing silver dragon that the waiter had placed on the table. Let us go down to the theatre. When you see Sybil, you will have a new ideal of life. She will represent something to you that you— have never known. I have known everything, said Lord Henry, with a sad look in his eyes. But I am always ready for a new emotion. I am afraid there is no such thing. For me, 
at any rate. Still, your wonderful girl may thrill me. I love acting. It is so much more real than life. Let us go. Dorian, you will come with me. I am so sorry, Basil, but there is only room for two in the brougham. You must follow us in a hansom. They got up and put on their coats, sipping their coffee, standing. Hallward was silent and preoccupied. There was a gloom over him. He could not bear this marriage, and yet it seemed to him to be better than many other things that might have happened. After a few moments, they all passed downstairs. He drove off by himself, as had been arranged, and watched the flashing lights of the little brougham in front of him. A strange sense of loss came over him. He felt that Dorian Gray would never again be to him all that he had been in the past. His eyes darkened, and the crowded, flaring streets became blurred to him. When the cab drew up at the doors of the theatre, it seemed to him that he had grown years older. End of chapter 4 of The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde As read by John Gonzales www.johngon.com Chapter 5 For some reason or other, the house was crowded that night, and the fat Jew manager who met them at the door was beaming from ear to ear with an oily, tremulous smile. He escorted them to their box with a sort of pompous humility, waving his fat, jeweled hands and talking at the top of his voice. Dorian Gray loathed him more than ever. He felt as if he had come to look for Miranda and had been met by Caliban. Lord Henry, upon the other hand, rather liked him. At least he declared he did, and insisted on shaking him by the hand, and assured him that he was proud to meet a man who had discovered a real genius and gone bankrupt over Shakespeare. Hallward amused himself with watching the faces in the pit. The heat was terribly oppressive, and the huge sunlight flamed like a monstrous dahlia with petals of fire. The youths in the gallery had taken off their coats and waistcoats and hung them over the side. They talked to each other across the theatre and shared their oranges with the tawdry painted girls who sat by them. Some women were laughing in the pit. Their voices were horribly shrill and discordant. The sound of popping corks came from the bar. "'What a place to find one's divinity in,' said Lord Henry. "'Yes,' answered Dorian Gray. "'It was here I found her, and she is divine beyond all living things. "'When she acts, you will forget everything. "'These common people here, with their coarse faces and brutal gestures, "'become quite different when she is on the stage. "'They sit silently and watch her. "'They weep and laugh as she wills them to.' She makes them as responsive as a violin. She spiritualizes them, and one feels that they are of the same flesh and blood as oneself. Oh, I hope not, murmured Lord Henry, who was scanning the occupants of the gallery through his opera glass. Don't pay any attention to him, Dorian, said Hallward. I understand what you mean, and I believe in this girl. 
Any one you love must be marvellous, and any girl that has the effect you describe must be fine and noble. To spiritualize one's age, that is something worth doing. If this girl can give a soul to those who have lived without one, if she can create the sense of beauty in people whose lives have been sordid and ugly, if she can strip them of their selfishness and lend them tears for sorrows that are not their own, she is worthy of all your adoration, worthy of the adoration of the world. This marriage is quite right. I did not think so at first, but I admit it now. God made Sybil Vane for you. Without her, you would have been incomplete. Thanks, Basil, answered Dorian Gray, pressing his hand. I knew that you would understand me. Harry is so cynical, he terrifies me. But here is the orchestra. It is quite dreadful, but it only lasts for about five minutes. Then the curtain rises, and you will see the girl to whom I am going to give all my life, to whom I have given everything that is good in me. A quarter of an hour afterwards, amidst the extraordinary turmoil of applause, Sybil Vane stepped onto the stage. Yes, she was certainly lovely to look at, one of the loveliest creatures, Lord Henry thought, that he had ever seen. There was something of the fawn in her shy grace and startled eyes. A faint blush, like the shadow of a rose in a mirror of silver, came to her cheeks as she glanced at the crowded, enthusiastic house. She stepped back a few paces, and her lips seemed to tremble. Basil Hallward leapt to his feet and began to applaud. Dorian Gray sat motionless, gazing on her like a man in a dream. Lord Henry peered through his opera-glass, murmuring, Charming! Charming! The scene was the hall of Capulet's house, and Romeo, in his pilgrim's dress, had entered with Mercutio and his friends. The band, such as it was, struck up a few bars of music, and the dance began. Through the crowd of ungainly, shabbily dressed actors, Sybil Vane moved like a creature from a finer world. Her body swayed as she danced, as a plant sways in the water. The curves of her throat were like the curves of a white lily. Her hands seemed to be made of cool ivory. Yet she was curiously listless. She showed no sign of joy when her eyes rested on Romeo, the few lines she had to speak. Good pilgrim, you do wrong your hand too much, which manly devotion shows in this, for saints have hands that pilgrim hands do touch, and palm to palm his holy palmer's kiss. With the brief dialogue that follows were spoken in thoroughly artificial manner. The voice was exquisite, but from the point of view of tone, it was absolutely false. It was wrong in color. It took away all the life from the verse. It made the passion unreal. Dorian Gray grew pale as he watched her. Neither of his friends dared to say anything to him. She seemed to them to be absolutely incompetent. They were horribly disappointed. Yet they felt that the true test of any Juliet is the balcony scene of the second act. They waited for that. If she failed there, there was nothing in her. She looked charming as she came out in the moonlight. That could not be denied. But the staginess of her acting was unbearable, and grew worse as she went on. Her gestures became absurdly artificial. 
She overemphasized everything that she had to say. The beautiful passage, Thou knowest the mask of night is on my face, else would a maiden blush bepaint my cheek for that which thou hast heard me speak to-night, was declaimed with the painful precision of a schoolgirl who had been taught to recite by some second-rate professor of elocution. When she leaned over the balcony and came to those wonderful lines, Although I joy in thee, I have no joy of this contract to-night. It is too rash, too unavised, too sudden, too like the lightning which doth cease to be ere one can say it lightens. Sweet, good-night. This bud of love by summer's ripening breath may prove a beauty's flower when next we meet. She spoke the words as if they conveyed no meaning to her. It was not nervousness, indeed. So far from being nervous, she seemed absolutely self-contained. It was simply bad art. She was a complete failure. Even the common, uneducated audience of the pit and gallery lost their interest in the play. They got restless and began to talk loudly and to whistle. The Jew manager, who was standing at the back of the dress circle, stamped and swore with rage. The only person unmoved was the girl herself. When the second act was over, there came a storm of hisses, and Lord Henry got up from his chair and put on his coat. "'She's quite beautiful, Dorian,' he said, "'but she can't act. Let us go.' "'I am going to see the play through,' answered the lad in a hard, bitter voice. "'I am awfully sorry that I have made you waste an evening, Harry. I apologize to both of you.' "'My dear Dorian,' "'I should think Miss Vane was ill,' interrupted Hallward. "'We will come some other night.' "'I wish she was ill,' he rejoined. "'But she seems to me to be simply callous and cold. "'She has entirely altered. "'Last night she was a great artist. "'Tonight she is merely a commonplace, mediocre actress.' "'Don't talk like that about any one you love, Dorian. "'Love is a more wonderful thing than art.' "'They are both simply forms of imitation,' murmured Lord Henry. "'But do let us go. "'Dorian, you must not stay here any longer. "'It is not good for one's morals to see bad acting. "'Besides, I don't suppose you will want your wife to act. "'So what does it matter if she plays Juliet like a wooden doll? "'She is very lovely, and if she knows as little about life as she does about acting, "'she will be a delightful experience.' There are only two kinds of people who are really fascinating. People who know absolutely everything, and people who know absolutely nothing. Oh, good heavens, my dear boy, don't look so tragic. The secret of remaining young is never to have an emotion that is unbecoming. Come to the club with Basil and myself. We will smoke cigarettes and drink to the beauty of Sybil Vane. She is beautiful, but what can you want? Please go away, Harry cried the lad. I really want to be alone. Basil, you don't mind my asking you to go. Can't you see that my heart is breaking? The hot tears came to his eyes. His lips trembled, and rushing to the back of the box, he leaned up against the wall, hiding his face in his hands. Let us go, Basil, said Lord Henry, with a strange tenderness in his voice, and the two young men passed out together. A few moments afterwards the footlights flared up, and the curtain rose on the third act. 
Dorian Gray went back to his seat. He looked pale and proud and indifferent. The play dragged on and seemed interminable. Half the audience went out, tramping in heavy boots and laughing. The whole thing was a fiasco. The last act was played to almost empty benches. As soon as it was over, Dorian Gray rushed behind the scenes into the green room. The girl was standing alone there with a look of triumph on her face. Her eyes were lit with an exquisite fire. There was a radiance about her. Her parted lips were smiling over some secret of their own. When he entered, she looked at him, and an expression of infinite joy came over her. "'How badly I acted to-night, Dorian!' she cried. "'Horribly!' he answered, gazing at her in amazement. "'Horribly! It was dreadful! Are you ill? You've no idea what it was. You've no idea what I suffered!' The girl smiled. "'Dorian!' she answered, lingering on his name with a long-drawn music in her voice, as though it were sweeter than honey to the red petals of her lips. "'Dorian, you should have understood. But you understand now, don't you? Understand what?' he asked angrily. "'Why I was so bad to-night. Why I shall always be bad. Why I shall never act well again.' He shrugged his shoulders. "'You are ill, I suppose.' When you are ill, you shouldn't act. You make yourself ridiculous. My friends were bored. I was bored. She seemed not to listen to him. She was transfigured with joy. An ecstasy of happiness dominated her. Dorian, Dorian, she cried. Before I knew you, acting was the one reality in my life. It was only in the theatre that I lived. I thought that it was all true. I was Rosalind one night and Portia the other. The joy of Beatrice was my joy, and the sorrows of Cordelia were mine also. I believed in everything. The common people who acted with me seemed to me to be godlike. The painted scenes were my world. I knew nothing but shadows, and I thought them real. You came, oh, my beautiful love, and you freed my soul from prison. You taught me what reality really is. Tonight, for the first time in my life, I saw through the hollowness, the sham, the silliness of the empty pageant in which I had always played. Tonight, for the first time, I became conscious that the Romeo was hideous and old and painted, that the moonlight in the orchard was false, that the scenery was vulgar, and that the words I had to speak were unreal, were not my words, not what I wanted to say. You had brought me something higher. "'something of which all art is but a reflection. "'You have made me understand what love really is. "'My love, my love, I am sick of shadows. "'You are more to me than all art can ever be. "'What have I to do with the puppets of a play? "'When I came on tonight, I could not understand how it was "'that everything had gone from me. "'Suddenly it dawned on my soul what it all meant. "'The knowledge was exquisite to me. I heard them hissing, and I smiled. What should they know of love? Take me away, Dorian. Take me away with you, where we can be quite alone. I hate the stage. I might mimic a passion that I do not feel, but I cannot mimic one that burns me like fire. Oh, Dorian, Dorian, you understand now what it all means? Even if I could do it, it would be profanation for me to play at being in love. 
You have made me see that. He flung himself down on the sofa and turned away his face. You have killed my love, he muttered. She looked at him in wonder and laughed. He made no answer. She came across to him and stroked his hair with her little fingers. She knelt down and pressed his hands to her lips. He drew them away, and a shudder ran through him. Then he leapt up and went to the door. Yes, he cried. You have killed my love. You used to stir my imagination. Now you don't even stir my curiosity. You simply produce no effect. I loved you because you were wonderful, because you had genius and intellect, because you realized the dreams of great poets and gave shape and substance to the shadows of art. You've thrown it all away. You are shallow and stupid. My God, how mad I was to love you. What a fool I have been. You are nothing to me now. I will never see you again. I will never think of you. I will never mention your name. You don't know what you were to me once. Why, once? Oh, I can't bear to think of it. I wish I'd never laid eyes on you. You have spoiled the romance of my life. How little you can know of love, if you say it mars your art. What are you without your art? Nothing. I would have made you famous, splendid, magnificent. The world would have worshipped you, and you would have belonged to me. What do you know? A third-rate actress with a pretty face. The girl grew white and trembled. She clenched her hands together, and her voice seemed to catch in her throat. You are not serious, Dorian, she murmured. You are acting. Acting? I leave that to you. You do it so well, he answered bitterly. She rose up from her knees, and with a piteous expression of pain in her face, came across the room to him. She put her hand on his arm and looked into his eyes. He thrust her back. "'Don't touch me,' he cried. A low moan broke from her, and she flung herself at his feet and lay there like a trampled flower. "'Dorian, Dorian, don't leave me,' she whispered. I am sorry I didn't act well. I was thinking of you all the time, but I will try. Indeed, I will try. It came so suddenly across me, my love for you. I think I should never have known it if you had not kissed me, if we had not kissed each other. Kiss me again, my love. Don't go away from me. I couldn't bear it. Can you forgive me for tonight? I will work so hard and try to improve. Don't be cruel to me, because I love you better than anything in the world. After all, it is only once that I have not pleased you. But you are quite right, Dorian. I should have shown myself more of an artist. It was foolish of me, and yet I couldn't help it. Oh, don't leave me, don't leave me. A fit of passionate sobbing choked her. She crouched on the floor like a wounded thing, and Dorian Gray, with his beautiful eyes, looked down at her, and his chiselled lips curled in exquisite disdain. There is always something ridiculous about the passions of people whom one has ceased to love. Sybil Vane seemed to him to be absurdly melodramatic. Her tears and sobs annoyed him. "'I am going,' he said at last, in his calm, clear voice. "'I don't wish to be unkind, but I can't see you again. You have disappointed me.' She wept silently, and made no answer, but crept nearer to him. 
Her little hands stretched blindly out, and appeared to be seeking for him. He turned on his heel and left the room. In a few moments he was out of the theatre. Where he went to, he hardly knew. He remembered wandering through dimly lit streets with gaunt, black-shadowed archways and evil-looking houses. Women with hoarse voices and harsh laughter had called after him. Drunkards had reeled by, cursing, and chattering to themselves like monstrous apes. He had seen grotesque children huddled upon doorsteps, and had heard shrieks and oaths from gloomy courts. When the dawn was just breaking, he found himself at Covent Garden. Huge carts filled with nodding lilies rumbled slowly down the polished, empty street. The air was heavy with perfume of the flowers, and the, their beauty seemed to bring him an anodyne for his pain. He followed into the market, and watched the men unloading their wagons. A white-smocked carter offered him some cherries. He thanked him, wondered why he refused to accept any money for them, and began to eat them listlessly. They had been plucked in midnight, and the coldness of the moon had entered into them. A long line of boys carrying crates of stripped tulips, and of yellow and red roses, defiled in front of him, threading their way through the huge jade-green piles of vegetables. Under the portico, with its grey sun-bleached pillars, loitered a troop of draggled, bareheaded girls, waiting for the auction to be over. After some time he hailed a hansom and drove home. He was pure opal now, and the roofs of the houses glistened like silver against it. As he was passing through the library towards the door of his bedroom, his eye fell upon the portrait Basil Hallward had painted him. He started back in surprise, and then went over to it and examined it. In the dim, arrested light that struggled through the cream-coloured silk blinds, the face seemed to him to be a little changed. The expression looked different. One would have said there was a touch of cruelty in the mouth. It was certainly curious. He turned round, and, walking to the window, drew the blinds up. The bright dawn flooded the room, and swept the fantastic shadows into dusky quarters where they lay shuddering. But the strange expression that he had noticed in the face of the portrait seemed to linger there, to be more intensified even. The quivering, ardent sunlight showed the lines of cruelty around the mouth as clearly as if he had been looking into a mirror after he had done some dreadful thing. He winced, and, taking up from the table an oval glass framed in ivory cupids that Lord Henry had given him, he glanced hurriedly into it. No line like that warped his red lips. Well, what did it mean? He rubbed his eyes, came close to the picture, and examined it again. There were no signs of any change when he looked into the actual painting, and yet there was no doubt that the whole expression had altered. It was not a mere fancy of his own. The, the thing was horribly apparent. He threw himself into a chair and began to think. Suddenly there flashed across his mind what he had said in Basil Hallward's studio the day the picture had been finished. Yes, he remembered it perfectly. He had uttered a mad wish that he himself might remain young, and the portrait grow old, that his own beauty might be untarnished, and the face on the canvas bear the burden of his passions and his sins, that the painted image 
might be seared with the lines of suffering and thought, and that he might keep all the delicate bloom and loveliness of his then just conscious boyhood. Surely his prayer had not been answered. Such things were impossible. It seemed monstrous to even think of them. And yet there was the picture before him with a touch of cruelty in the mouth. Cruelty? Had he been cruel? It was the girl's fault, not his. He had dreamed of her as a great artist, had given his love to her because he had thought her great. Then she had disappointed him. She had been shallow and unworthy. And yet a feeling of infinite regret came over him, as he thought of her lying at his feet, sobbing like a little child. He remembered with what callousness he had watched her. Why had he been made like that? Why had such a soul been given to him? But he suffered also. During the three terrible hours that the play lasted, he had lived centuries of pain, eon upon eon of torture. His life was well worth hers. She had marred him for a moment, if he wounded her for an age. Besides, women were better suited to bear sorrow than men. They lived on their emotions. They only thought of their emotions. When they took lovers, it was merely to have someone with whom they could have scenes. Lord Henry told him that, and Lord Henry knew what women were. Why should he trouble about Sybil Vane? She was nothing to him now. But the picture. What was he to say of that? It held the secret of his life, and told his story. It had taught him to love his own beauty. Would it teach him to loathe his own soul? Would he ever look at it again? No, it was merely an illusion wrought on the troubled senses. The horrible night that he had passed had left phantoms behind it. Suddenly there had fallen upon his brain that tiny scarlet speck that makes men mad. The picture had not changed. It was folly to think so. <laughs> Yet it was watching him with its beautiful marred face and its cruel smile. Its bright hair gleamed in the early sunlight, its blue eyes met his own. A sense of infinite pity, not for himself, but for the painted image of himself, came over him. It had altered already, and would alter more. Its gold would wither into grey. Its red and white roses would die. For every sin that he committed... A stain would fleck and wreck its fairness. But he would not sin. The picture, changed or unchanged, would be to him the visible emblem of conscience. He would resist temptation. He would not see Lord Henry any more, would not, at any rate, listen to those subtle poisonous theories that in Basil Hallward's garden had first stirred within him the passion for impossible things. He would go back to Sybil Vane, make her amends, marry her, try to love her again, Yes, it was his duty to do so. She must have suffered more than he did, poor child. He had been selfish and cruel to her. The fascination that she had exercised over him would return. They would be happy together. His life with her would be beautiful and pure. He got up from his chair and drew a large screen right in front of the portrait, shuddering as he glanced at it. How horrible! he murmured to himself, and he walked across to the window and opened it. When he stepped out onto the grass, he drew a deep breath. 
The fresh morning air seemed to drive away all his sombre passions. He thought only of Sybil Vane. A faint echo of his love came back to him. He repeated her name over and over again. The birds that were singing in the dew-drenched garden seemed to be telling the flowers about her. End of chapter 5 of The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde As recorded by John Gonzales www.johngon.com Chapter 6 It was long past noon when he awoke. His valet had crept several times into the room on tiptoe to see if he was stirring, and had wondered what made his young master sleep so late. Finally his bell sounded, and Victor came in softly with a cup of tea and a pile of letters on a small tray of gold Sevres china, and drew back the olive satin curtains with their shimmering blue lining that hung in front of the three tall windows. "'Monsieur has slept well this morning,' he said, smiling. "'What o'clock is it, Victor?' asked Dorian Gray sleepily. "'One hour and a quarter, monsieur.' "'How late it was!' He sat up, and, having sipped some tea, turned over his letters— one was from Lord Henry, and had been brought by hand that morning. He hesitated for a moment, then put it aside. The others he opened listlessly. They contained the usual collection of cards, invitations to dinner, tickets for private views, programs of charity concerts and the like, that are showered on fashionable young men every morning during the season. There was a rather heavy bill for a chased silver Louis Keene's toilet set, that he had not yet had the courage to send on to his guardians, who were extremely old-fashioned people, and did not realize that we live in an age when only unnecessary things are absolutely necessary to us. And there were several very courteously worded communications from German street money-lenders, offering to advance any sum of money at a moment's notice, and at the most reasonable rates of interest. After about ten minutes he got up, and— throwing on an elaborate dressing-gown, passed into the onyx-paved bathroom. The cool water refreshed him after his long sleep. He seemed to have forgotten all that he had gone through. A dim sense of having taken part in some strange tragedy came to him once or twice, but there was the unreality of a dream about it. As soon as he was dressed, he went into the library and sat down to a light French breakfast that had been laid out for him on a small round table close to an open window. It was an exquisite day. The warm air seemed laden with spices. A bee flew in and buzzed around the blue dragon bowl, filled with sulfur-yellow roses that stood in front of him. He felt perfectly happy. Suddenly his eye fell on the screen that he had placed in front of his portrait, and he started. "'Too cold, monsieur?' asked his valet, putting an omelette on the table. "'I shut the window?' Dorian shook his head. "'I am not cold,' he murmured. 
Was it all true? Had the portrait really changed? Or had it been simply his own imagination that had made him see a look of evil where there had been a look of joy? Surely a painted canvas could not alter. The thing was absurd. It would serve as a tale to tell Basil some day. It would make him smile. And yet how vivid was his recollection of the whole thing. First in the dim twilight, then in the bright dawn, he had seen the touch of cruelty in the warped lips. He almost dreaded his valet leaving the room. He knew that when he was alone, he would have to examine the portrait. He was afraid of certainty. When the coffee and cigarettes had been brought and the man turned to go, he felt a mad desire to tell him to remain. As the door closed behind him, he called him back. The man stood waiting for his orders. Dorian looked at him for a moment. "'I am not home to anyone, Victor,' he said with a sigh. The man bowed and retired. He rose from the table, lit a cigarette, and flung himself down on a luxuriously cushioned couch that stood facing the screen. The screen was an old one of Spanish gilt leather, stamped and wrought with a rather florid Louis XIV pattern. He scanned it curiously wondering if it had ever before concealed the secret of a man's life. Should he move it aside, after all? Why not let it stay there? What was the use of knowing? If the thing was true, it was terrible. If it was not true, why trouble about it? But what if, by some fate or deadlier chance, other eyes than his spied behind and saw the horrible change? What should he do if Basil Hallward came and asked to look at his own picture? He would sure do that. No, the thing had to be examined and at once. Anything would be better than this dreadful state of doubt. He got up and locked both doors. At least he would be alone when he looked upon the mask of his shame. Then he drew the screen aside and saw himself face to face. It was perfectly true. The portrait had altered. As he often remembered afterwards, and always with no small wonder, he found himself at first gazing at the portrait with a feeling of almost scientific interest. That such a change should have taken place was incredible to him, and yet it was a fact. Was there some subtle affinity between the chemical atoms that shaped themselves into form and color on the canvas? and the soul that was within him? Could it be that what that soul thought they realized? That what it dreamed they made true? Or was there some other more terrible reason? He shuddered and felt afraid, and, going back to the couch, lay there, gazing at the picture in sickened horror. One thing, however, he felt that it had done for him. It had made him conscious how unjust, how cruel he had been to Sybil Vane. It was not too late to make reparation for that. She could still be his wife. His unreal and selfish love would yield to some higher influence, would be transformed into some nobler passion, and the portrait that Basil Hallward had painted of him would be a guide to him through life would be to him what holiness was to some, and conscience was to others, and the fear of God to us all. 
There were opiates for remorse, drugs that could lull the moral sense to sleep, but here was a visible symbol of the degradation of sin. Here was an ever-present sign of the ruin men brought upon their souls. Three o'clock struck, and four, and half-past four, but he did not stir. He was trying to gather up the scarlet threads of his life, and to weave them into a pattern, to find his way through the sanguine labyrinth of passion through which he was wandering. He did not know what to do, or what to think. Finally, he went over to the table, and wrote a passionate letter to the girl he had loved, imploring her forgiveness, and accusing himself of madness. He covered page after page with wild words of sorrow and wilder words of pain. There is a luxury in self-reproach. When we blame ourselves, we feel that no one else has a right to blame us. It is the confession, not the priest, that gives us absolution. When Dorian Gray had finished the letter, he felt that he had been forgiven. Suddenly there came a knock to the door, and he heard Lord Henry's voice outside. "'My dear Dorian, I must see you. Let me in at once. I can't bear you shutting yourself up like this.' He made no answer at first, but remained quite still. The knocking still continued, and grew louder. Yes, it was better to let Lord Henry in, and to explain to him the new life he was going to lead, to quarrel with him if it had become necessary to quarrel, to part if parting was inevitable.' He jumped up and drew the screen hastily across the picture and unlocked the door. "'I am so sorry for it all, my dear boy,' said Lord Henry, coming in. "'But you must not think about it too much.' "'Do you mean Sybil Vane?' asked Dorian. "'Yes, of course,' answered Henry, sinking into a chair and slowly pulling his gloves off. "'It is dreadful, from one point of view, but it was not your fault. Tell me.' "'Did you go behind and see her after the play was over?' "'Yes, I felt sure you had. "'Did you make a scene with her?' "'I was brutal, Harry, perfectly brutal. "'But it is all right now. "'I am not sorry for anything that has happened. "'It has taught me to know myself better. "'Oh, Dorian, I am so glad you take it in that way.' I was afraid I would find you plunged in remorse and tearing your nice hair. I've got through all that, said Dorian, shaking his head and smiling. I'm perfectly happy now. I know what conscience is, to begin with. It is not what you told me it was. It is the divinest thing in us. Oh, don't sneer at it, Harry, any more. At least not before me. I want to be good. I can't bear the idea of my soul being hideous. A very charming artistic basis for ethics, Dorian. I congratulate you on it. But how are you going to begin? By marrying Sybil Vane. Marrying Sybil Vane? cried Lord Henry, standing up and looking at him in a perplexed amazement. But, my dear Dorian. Yes, Harry, I know what you are going to say. Something dreadful about marriage. Don't say it. Don't ever say things of that kind to me again. Two days ago I asked Sybil to marry me. I am not going to break my word to her. She is to be my wife. Your wife? Dorian, didn't you get my letter? I wrote to you this morning, and sent the note down by my own man. Your letter? Oh, yes, I remember. 
I have not read it yet, Harry. I was afraid there might be something in it that I wouldn't like. Lord Henry walked across the room, and, sitting down by Dorian, took both hands in his and held them tightly. Dorian, he said, my letter, don't be frightened. My letter was to tell you that Sybil Vane is dead. A cry of pain rose from the lad's lips, and he leapt to his feet, tearing his hands away from Lord Henry's grasp. Dead? Sybil dead? It, it is not true. It is a horrible lie. It is quite true, Dorian, said Lord Henry gravely. It is in all the morning papers. I wrote down to you to ask you not to see anyone till I came. There will have to be an inquest, of course, and you must not be mixed up in it. Things like that make a man fashionable in Paris, but in London people are so prejudiced. Here one should never make one's debut with a scandal. One should reserve that to give an interest to one's old age. I don't suppose they know your name at the theatre. If they don't, it is all right. Did anyone see you going round to her room? That is an important point. Dorian did not answer for a few moments. He was dazed with horror. Finally he murmured in a stifled voice, Harry, did you say an inquest? What did you mean by that? Did Sib— Oh— "'Harry, I can't bear it. But be quick. Tell me everything at once. "'I have no doubt that it was not an accident, Dorian, though it must be put in that way to the public. "'As she was leaving the theatre with her mother, about half-past twelve or so, "'she said she had forgotten something upstairs. "'They waited some time for her, but she did not come down again. "'They ultimately found her lying dead on the floor of her dressing-room. "'She had swallowed something by mistake.' some dreadful thing they use at theatres. I don't know what it was, but it was either prussic acid or white lead in it. I should fancy it was prussic acid, as she seems to have died instantaneously. It is very tragic, of course, but you must not get yourself mixed up in it. I see by the standard that she was seventeen. I should have thought she was almost younger than that. She looks such a child, and seemed to know so little about acting. Dorian, you mustn't let this thing get on your nerves. You must come and dine with me, and afterwards we'll go in at the opera. It is a patty night, and everyone will be there. You can come to my sister's box. She has got some smart women with her. So I have murdered Sybil Vane, said Dorian Gray, half to himself. Murdered her as certainly as if I had cut her little throat with a knife. And the roses are not less lovely for all that. The birds sing just as happily in my garden. And to-night I am to dine with you, and then go on to the opera and sup somewhere, I suppose, afterwards. How extraordinarily dramatic life is! If I had read all this in a book, Harry, I think I would have wept over it. Somehow, now that it has happened actually, and to me, it seems far too wonderful for tears. Here's the first passionate love-letter I've ever written in my life. Strange that my first passionate love-letter should have been addressed to a dead girl. Can they feel, I wonder, those silent people we call the dead? Sybil? Can she feel, or know, or listen? 
Oh, Harry, how I loved her once. It seems years ago to me now. She was everything to me. Then came that dreadful night. Was it really only last night, when she played so badly and my heart almost broke? She explained it all to me. It was terribly pathetic. But I was not moved a bit. I thought her shallow. Then something happened that made me afraid. I can't tell you what it is, but it was awful. I said I would go back to her. I felt I had done wrong, and now she is dead. My God! My God! But Harry, what shall I do? You don't know the danger I am in, and there is nothing to keep me straight. She would have done that for me. She had no right to kill herself. It was selfish of her. My dear Dorian, the only way a woman can ever reform a man is by boring him so completely that he loses all interest in life. If you had married this girl, you would have been wretched. Of course you would have treated her kindly. One can always be kind to people about whom one cares nothing. But she would have soon found out that you were absolutely indifferent to her, and when a woman finds that out about her husband, she either becomes dreadfully dowdy, or wears some very smart bonnets that some other woman's husband has to pay for. I say nothing about the social mistake, but I assure you that in any case, the whole thing would have been an absolute failure. I suppose it would, muttered the lad, walking up and down the room and looking horribly pale, but I thought it was my duty. It is not my fault that this terrible tragedy had prevented my doing what was right. I remember your saying once that there is a fatality about good resolutions, that they are always made too late. Mine certainly were. Good resolutions are simply a useless attempt to interfere with scientific laws. Their origin is pure vanity. Their result is absolutely nil. They give us, now and then, some of those luxurious, sterile emotions that have a certain charm for us. That is all that can be said for them. Harry, cried Dorian Gray, coming over and sitting down beside him, why is it that I cannot feel this tragedy as much as I want to? I don't think I am heartless, do you? You've done too many foolish things in your life to be entitled to give yourself that name, Dorian, answered Lord Henry with his sweet, melancholy smile. The lad frowned. I don't like that explanation, Harry, he rejoined, but I am glad you don't think I am heartless. I am nothing of that kind. I know I am not. And yet I must admit that this thing that has happened does not affect me as it should. It seems to me to be simply like a wonderful ending to a wonderful play. It is all the terrible beauty of a great tragedy, a tragedy in which I took part, but by which I have not been wounded. It is an interesting question, said Lord Henry, who found an exquisite pleasure in playing on the lad's unconscious egotism. An extremely interesting question. I fancy that the explanation is this. It often happens that the real tragedies of life occur in such an inartistic manner that they hurt us by their cruel violence, their absolute incoherence, their absurd want of meaning, their entire lack of style. 
they affect us just as vulgarity affects us. They give us an impression of sheer brute force, and we revolt against that. Sometimes, however, a tragedy that has artistic elements of beauty crosses over our lives. If these elements of beauty are real, the whole thing simply appeals to our sense of dramatic effect. Suddenly, we find that we are no longer the actors, but the spectators of the play. Or rather, we are both. We watch ourselves, and the mere wonder of the spectacle enthralls us. In the present case, what is it that has really happened? Someone has killed herself for love of you. I wish I had ever had such an experience. It would have made me in love with love for the rest of my life. The people who have adored me, well, there have not been very many, but there have been some, have always insisted on living on, long after I ceased to care for them, or they to care for me. They become stout and tedious, and when I meet them they go in at once for reminiscences. That awful memory of woman. What a fearful thing it is, and what an utter intellectual stagnation it reveals. One should absorb the color of life, but one should never remember its details. Details are always vulgar. Of course, now and then things linger. I once wore nothing but violets all in one through one season, as mourning for a romance that would not die. Ultimately, however, it did die. I forget what killed it. I think it was her proposing to sacrifice the whole world for me. Oh, that is always a dreadful moment. It fills one with the terror of eternity. Well, would you believe it, a week ago, at Lady Hampshire's, I found myself seated at dinner next the lady in question. And she insisted on going over the whole thing again, and digging up the past, and raking up the future, I had buried my romance in a bed of poppies. She dragged it out again, and assured me that I had spoiled her life. I am bound to state that she ate an enormous dinner, so I did not feel any anxiety. But what a lack of taste she showed. The one charm of the past is that it is the past. But women never know when the curtain has fallen. They always want a sixth act, and as soon as the interest of the play is entirely over, they propose to continue it. If they were allowed to have their way, every comedy would have a tragic ending, and every tragedy would culminate in a farce. They are charmingly artificial, but they have no sense of art. You are more fortunate than I am. I assure you, Dorian— that not one of the women I have known would have done for me what Sybil Vane did for you. Ordinary women always console themselves. Some of them do it by going in for sentimental colours. Uh, never trust a woman who wears mauve, whatever her age may be, or a woman over thirty-five who is fond of pink ribbons. It always means they have a history. Others find a great consolation in suddenly discovering the good qualities of their husbands. They flaunt their conjugal felicity in one's face, as if it was the most fascinating of sins. Religion consoles some. Its mysteries have all the charm of a flirtation, a woman once told me. I can quite understand it. Besides, 
Nothing makes one so vain as being told that one is a sinner. There is really no end to the consolations that women find in modern life. Indeed, I have not mentioned the most important one of all. What is that, Harry? said Dorian listlessly. Oh, the obvious one. Taking someone else's admirer when one loses one's own. In good society, that always whitewashes a woman. But really, Dorian, how different Sybil Vane must have been from all the women one meets. There is something to me quite beautiful about her death. I am glad I am living in a century when such wonders happen. They make one believe in the reality of the things that shallow, fashionable people play with, such as romance, passion, and love. I was terribly cruel to her, you forget that. I believe that women appreciate cruelty more than anything else. They have wonderfully primitive instincts. We have emancipated them, but they remain slaves looking for their masters all the same. They love being dominated. I am sure you are splendid. I have never seen you angry, but I can fancy how delightful you looked. And, after all, you said something to me the day before yesterday that seemed to me at the time to be mere fanciful but that I see now, was absolutely true, and it explains everything. What was that, Harry? You said to me that Sybil Vane represented to you all the heroines of romance, that she was Desdemona one night and Ophelia the other, that if she died as Juliet she came to life as Imogen. She will never come to life again now, murmured the lad, burying his face in his hands. Oh, she will never come to life. She has played her last part. But you must think of that lonely death in the tawdry dressing-room simply as a strange, lurid fragment from some Jacobean tragedy, as a wonderful scene from Webster, or Ford, or Cyril Tourney. The girl never really lived, and so she has never really died. To you, at least, she was always a dream, a phantom that flitted through Shakespeare's plays and left them lovelier for its presence, a reed through which Shakespeare's music sounded richer and more full of joy. The moment she touched actual life, she marred it, and it marred her, and so she passed away. Mourn for Ophelia, if you like. Put ashes on your head because Cordelia was strangled. Cry out against heaven, because the daughter of Brabantio died. But don't waste your tears over Sybil Vane. She was less real than they are. There was a silence. The evening darkened in the room. Noiselessly, and with silver feet, the shadows crept in from the garden. The colors faded warily out of things. At some time Dorian looked up. "'You have explained to me myself, Harry,' he murmured, with something of a sigh of relief. "'I felt all that you have said, but somehow I was afraid of it, and I could not express it to myself. "'How well you know me! "'But we will not talk again of what has happened. "'It has been a marvellous experience. That is all. "'I wonder if life has still in store for me anything as marvellous. Life has everything in store for you, Dorian. There is nothing that you 
with your extraordinary good looks, will not be able to do. But suppose, Harry, I become haggard, and grey, and wrinkled, what then? Ah, then, said Lord Henry, rising to go, then, my dear Dorian, you would have to fight for your victories. As it is, they are brought to you. No, you must keep your good looks. We live in an age that reads too much to be wise, and thinks too much to be beautiful. We cannot spare you. And now you had better dress, and drive down to the club. We are rather late, as it is. I think I shall join you at the opera, Harry. I feel too tired to eat anything. What is the number of your sister's box? Twenty-seven, yeah, I believe. It is on the grand tier. You will see her name on the door. Uh, but I am sorry you won't come and dine. I don't feel up to it, said Dorian, wearily. "'But I am awfully obliged to you for all that you have said to me. "'You are certainly my best friend. "'No one has ever understood me as you have.' "'We are only at the beginning of our friendship, Dorian,' answered Lord Henry, shaking him by the hand. "'Good-bye. I shall see you before nine-thirty, I hope. "'Remember, Patty is singing.' As he closed the door behind him, Dorian touched the bell, and in a few minutes Victor appeared with lamps and drew the blinds down. He waited impatiently for him to go. The men seemed to take an interminable time about everything. As soon as he had left, he rushed to the screen and drew it back. No, there was no further change in the picture. It had received the news of Sybil Vane's death before he had known it himself. It was conscious of the events of life as they occurred. The vicious cruelty that marred the fine lines of the mouth had, no doubt, appeared at the very moment that the girl had drunk the poison, whatever it was. Or was it indifferent to results? Did it merely take cognizance of what had passed within the soul, he wondered, and hoped that some day he would see the change taking place before his very eyes, shuddering as he hoped it? Poor Sybil! What a romance it had all been! She had often mimicked death on the stage, and at last death himself had touched her, and brought her with him. How had she played that dreadful scene? Had she cursed him as she died? No. She had died for love of him, and love would always be a sacrament to him now. She had atoned for everything, by the sacrifice she had made of her life. He would not think any more of what she had made him go through that horrible night to the theatre. When he thought of her, it would be a wonderful, tragic figure to show love had been a great reality. A wonderful, tragic figure? Tears came to his eyes as he remembered her childlike look and winsome, fanciful ways and shy, tremulous grace. He wiped them away hastily, and looked again at the picture. He felt that the time had really come for making his choice. Or had his choice already been made? Yes, life had decided that for him. Life, and his own infinite curiosity about life. Eternal youth, infinite passion, pleasures subtle and secret, wild joys and wilder sins. He was to have all these things. The portrait was to bear the burden of his shame. That was all. 
A feeling of pain came over him as he thought of the desecration that was in store for the fair face on the canvas. Once, in boyish mockery of Narcissus, he had kissed, or feigned to kiss, those painted lips that now smiled so cruelly at him. Morning after morning he had sat before the portrait, wondering at its beauty, almost enamoured of it, as it seemed to him at times. Was it to alter now with every mood to which he yielded? Was it to become a hideous and loathsome thing, to be hidden away in a locked room, to be shut out from the sunlight that had so often touched to brighter gold the waving wonder of the hair? Oh, the pity of it! pity of it. For a moment he thought of praying that the horrible sympathy that existed between him and the picture might cease. It had changed in an answer to a prayer, perhaps. In answer to a prayer it might remain unchanged. And yet, who, that knew anything about life, would surrender the chance of remaining always young, however fantastic that chance might be? or with what fateful consequences it might be fraught. Besides, was it really under his control? Had it indeed been prayer that had produced the substitution? Might there not be some curious scientific reason for it all? If thought could exercise its influence upon a living organism, might not thought exercise an influence upon dead and inorganic things? Nay, Without thought or conscious desire, might not things external to ourselves vibrate in unison with our moods and passions, atom calling to atom in secret love or in secret affinity? But the reason was of no importance. It would never again tempt, by a prayer, any terrible power. If the picture was to alter, it was to alter that was all. Why inquire too closely into it? For there would be a real pleasure in watching it. He would be able to follow his mind into its secret places. This portrait would be to him the most magical of mirrors. As it had revealed to him his own body, so it would reveal to him his own soul. And when winter came upon it, he would still be standing where spring trebles on the verge of summer. When the blood crept from its face and left behind a pallid mask of chalk with leaden eyes, he would keep the glamour of boyhood. Not one blossom of his loveliness would ever fade. Not one pulse of his life would ever weaken. Like the gods of the Greeks, he would be strong and fleet and joyous. What did it matter what happened to the coloured image on the canvas? He would be safe. That was everything. He drew the screen back into its former place in front of the picture, smiling as he did so, and passed into his bedroom, where his valet was already waiting for him. An hour later he was at the opera, and Lord Henry was leaning over his chair. End of chapter 6 of the picture of Dorian Gray.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.